This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. This is the show where we give you the ideas, the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Happy March 1st. I remember as a child learning March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb. Is that right? It's March 1st. Coming in like a lion. Roaring with storms. Your mane does look beautiful this morning. Thank you very much. Speaking of you looking beautiful. Yes. Let's talk about that. Today is also World Compliment Day. What are we doing? Oh, thank you. You look beautiful this morning. Thank you, Terry. You too. No, I was mocking others that had just said that. Wait, others meaning me? Yeah, so it wasn't You're a compliment. Mo- you were mocking <laughs> I was not complimenting anyone at that moment. Have I told you guys... Lately? How, lately how special you are to me. Nope. And how special you are to this world. Uh, so talented, so gifted at all you do. So cynical at times. Mostly. Go on. <laughs> Just like, and? I like where this is going. <laughs> it's compliment day. So we will compliment everybody all day long. Matt, I love you. Oh, my gosh. Ditto. I love you, too. <laughs> I love this team. I love our people. Uh, people, by the way, talk about compliment day. I don't think Donald Trump has received more compliments than in the last 20, what, 12 hours. People are loving Donald Trump after that speech. From people who genuinely don't like him. I know. He nailed it. He really did a great job. I mean. Yes, he read his script really well. Well, but again, it doesn't matter. That was every president reads their script. Well, I know, but it's. He read it well, as did every president. As other people talked about, there was a low bar. Well, sure. Just come out and not be yourself. But, But part of what he did is he actually said many things that we'll get into in a minute. Yeah. That were kind of unifying. That was the theme of the whole It was like mind-blowing. It is also Peanut Butter Lover's Day. Really? So did you bring some... No, but some (laughs) student, I assume it's a student, keeps leaving candy candy right by me here. Maybe they're leaving it for you. Maybe. You keep... I mean, I know after about a week you got to take it because just because of the health right. code. There's a, there's a giant bag of Skittles and a pretty big bag of Reese's Pieces. It's Peanut Butter Lovers Day, so let's maybe we ought to just pass those bad boys around. Yeah, and love them, and then compliment the person that left them. Thank you, whoever you are, whoever was manning the board during the last BYU basketball game. I have noticed that the bags have gotten smaller, or the contents in the bag have. Have it's shrinking. Uh, yeah. That might be Terry in between breaks. Mm-hmm. I'm working on my willpower, okay, guys? By the way, it's also, pig, it's, it's also pig day. Pig day. I guess the day we uh, celebrate pigs. Yep. They've been alongside us since prehistory and have been a vital part of our diets and our lives. Oh, that's a horrible line. <laughs> we, we not only eat damn pigs, but Remember, we also live with them. They're food first. <laughs> They are. They have become a pet as well, right? Yeah, I had a neighbor. I had a neighbor growing up that had a pig. It really smelled. Can you hear Jeff eating those candies? Yeah. 
He's rooting around for them, if you will. That's crazy. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, we will talk uh, more about Trump's uh, great speech to Congress. That is just highly acclaimed now. It's, in fact, I think it's going to win an Oscar in 2018. That's what I'm hearing. Um, we'll talk about that. Also coming up, we'll have um, – because there's been a lot of talk historically about Donald Trump having all of these conflicts of interest. Yes. So, But he doesn't think they are a big deal. But we're bringing in somebody that that knows about conflict of interest and really why he probably doesn't think it's a big deal. The rules are kind of murky at times as to what what applies, what doesn't apply. Depending on who you're listening to, they think it really applies or it doesn't. And what they expect you to do is pretty much give up everything you've built. Yes. And like you couldn't get Warren Buffett to be president of the United States unless he divested himself from everything. Right. Which – can't happen. And even by the but, way, even divesting it and putting it all into a blind trust, he's a smart enough man yeah. to know still how to influence it. See, but the people in the cabinet, you know, the billionaires all he the brought in, billionaires, yeah. they had to separate themselves from business interests. That's part of the rules of being in the cabinet yeah. and heading these departments, I know. but not the president. Now, do you remember why? Ask George Washington, who had vast dealings and business dealings and property dealings. Right. By the way, be honest. Yeah. Every time you see Warren Buffett's name, don't you for a split second see buffet and then get hungry? Um, honestly? No. No. Uh-uh. Oh. I think a billionaire and get I get greedy. I get jealous. I have envy. That's where I go. Really? Shallow. You go to food. Always. I go to, I go to envy. <laughs> like, I want to be Warren Buffett for a day. Anywho, we'll talk about all that fun. But um, first, let's get to the headlines. With Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? In last night's speech to Congress, President Trump opened condemning the waves of threats against Jewish community centers across the United States and a recent shooting in Kansas that targeted and killed an Indian man. Uh, Trump had, hadn't commented extensively on the shooting previously and earlier in the day Tuesday, reportedly suggested that the threats against Jewish community centers may have been, quote, false flags planted by opponents hoping to make him look bad. He then walked back those comments before his speech. Huh. Yeah, it was kind of like, what? What's he talking about now? Uh, The FBI is probing last week's triple shooting and homicide in Kansas as a hate crime, the agency said Tuesday. Adam uh, Purinton, 51, allegedly shot two Indian men in a bar, killing one after yelling, get out of my country. Uh, He also shot a white bystander who attempted to chase him down. He was one of our heroes of the day. And after fleeing the scene, uh, the, the... Puritan confided in a bartender at a local Applebee's that he had just shot two Iranian oh boy. people. So, <laughs> so they're looking at it as a hate crime. Investigations are ongoing. Uh, following pressure from the Pentagon and State Department, President Trump's next executive order on immigration will take Iraq off the list of countries whose citizens are temporarily barred from entering the United States, several U.S. officials told the Associated Press. The officials say that uh, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen will stay on the list, but Iraq was removed because the country is a crucial partner in the fight against the Islamic State. Right, we're partnering with them. The new order expected to be released later this week after, you know, maybe some things have... Down a little bit. At least 22 tornadoes in a severe thunderstorm wrecked havoc in the Midwest on Tuesday night from Illinois to Missouri through Tennessee, Indiana, and Iowa. At least three people were reportedly killed in the aftermath with dozens more injured. CNN reports that as many as 100 million Americans will be in the path of severe weather through midday today. Really? Oh. So keep your heads down. Uh, and other news, cord cutters rejoice. 
Why? None here, though. On Tuesday, Google announced the launch of YouTube TV, a $35 a month service that offers viewers access to over 40 networks, including ABC's Fox, CBS, NBC, ESPN, and more. Really? Um, They've designed it to work on TV, desktop, and mobile devices and comes with an unlimited DVR, although all those shows are eventually deleted off after nine months. So a limited DVR. Yeah, so it's limited (laughs) to a nine month. So get to your show. Yeah. Don't let us sit like I have shows from last year that Quits, are still sitting they're there. They're spinning us. Come and I, on. And I roll by them and go, ah, I'll totally watch that. Someday I will. Someday. So uh, no word when it's going to come out. They're saying uh, it'll be released in the coming weeks and months. Holy cow. That's pretty vague, too. Yeah. But apparently, weeks, months, years. <laughs> apparently it's one of the most limited options if you are looking to cut the cord. It is. is Some is of the it? cable companies have more options. Yeah, for now. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I'm going to be cutting a cord in about three months. Really? Yeah. Different cord. Oh, Oh, yeah. You're talking the umbilical cord. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a different cut. That's a fun one, though. I I let the educated pros take care of that. Oh, I did. I cut every one of my kids. This is different. Usually usually you are charged a lot of money before you cut the cord. Yeah. This one's going to cost me a lot of money after I cut the cord. Oh, absolutely. This is true. The doctor always says, uh, he always hands me scissors, and I'm like, no, I got my own. And then I just pull out a knife. I always carry a Bowie knife with me. Mm. You never know when you got to cut a cord. Be prepared. Be prepared. The scout motto is that the mo- motto? That's the motto. Could be. Hey, um, Donald Trump. By the way, the ratings are in CNN. According to a CNN poll, seven in ten speech watchers say Trump boosted optimism. Yeah, he did it. That's like because they were hoping that this kind of speech would happen at the inauguration, and it didn't quite happen. And this one really, it's moving people. <laughs> Tepid response. Tepid. Yeah, about five people. On specific issues, Trump scored the highest marks for his proposed policies on the economy, with 72% saying those uh, went in the right direction. Almost as many, 70%, say that his, his terrorism proposals are good. Slightly fewer but still a majority fill his policies on taxes. That's 64% think they're going in the right direction. Immigration, 62%, which is surprising. That seems like a higher number right. than we hear about a lot. And 61% on health care. So, I mean, what do you say? He's, he did okay. He, uh, there were some moments where people – he would say something and there was this awkward silence or this awkward chuckling going on from the opposition. Right. In fact, let's get into some of those. Um, a really fun one. Um, let's just start. This this is uh, a little laughter in the House chamber, chamber when Trump talked about draining the swamp. We have begun to drain the swamp of government corruption by imposing a five-year ban on lobbying by executive branch officials. Just They're laughing. They're like, really? They're laughing. <laughs> You're going to hold to that line. Okay. Uh, this was a really interesting statement about anti-Semitism, um, and it was kind of a unifying statement. Recent threats targeting Jewish community centers and vandalism of Jewish cemeteries, as well as last week's shooting in Kansas City, remind us that while we may be a nation divided on policies, we are a country that stands united in condemning hate and evil in all of its very ugly forms. There you go. 
<laughs> he got a lot of applause there. It's really weird because half a lot of times only half the half the yeah of the senators and the congressmen would stand. they sit Republican Democrat. Yeah. I, do the moderates sit in the middle? I don't think they. I don't think they do it that way. There's a. It would be very difficult as a Democrat. I think it's more difficult to listen to the speech because you have to listen to know when you need to stand yeah, up. Because there's times you need to stand up. Like you don't want to be. There's certain times it's really bad on camera just yeah. to sit there like you're ignoring I'm not standing the whole thing. when they're but talking could, about anti-Semitism. You could see where you you just phase out and just yeah. start ignoring everything. Well, and so. how do you not roll your eyes? There were only five justices there, by the way. Yes. Uh, who is the one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Who's the one that rolled his eyes? I'm not sure. Uh, J- Justice Alito, I think. Did no, he 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 mouthed the words a few with President Obama. That's not right, true, right? Or liar, and, or, something or yeah, like and they caught him. Well, someone yelled liar, and well, I yeah, think yeah, Alito's yeah. the one that said that's not true, right? And um, they actually caught him on camera. So now all the justices just sit there, except the one justice. There now, there's a whole Twitter feed about her her face, her facial expressions. Mm. Not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not. Sotomayor? Not Sotomayor. Okay. The other one. Yeah. We'll have our, our crack producers <laughs> look that up. But she has this look on her face like, get me out of here. Yeah. But uh, it was good. I'm happy. There were times where they were clapping. You, you'd see where the justices – because usually they stay out of the politics stuff. But yeah. There was a moment where they were talking to the uh, – what uh, – William Ryan Owen's widow. Yes. The, the Navy SEAL that was killed in that uh, that military action that happened right after Trump was inaugurated. Probably the most moving part of the entire and speech. The, the justices – I saw him clapping. I'm like, oh, well, of course. It's not politics. They can do that. In fact, let's listen to clip 14. This is Donald Trump, President Trump, thanking the wife of the slain Navy SEAL, William Ryan Owens. I'm blessed to be joined tonight by Corinne Owens the widow of U.S. Navy Special Operator, Senior Chief William Ryan Owens. Ryan died as he lived, a warrior and a hero, battling against terrorism and securing our nation. I just spoke to our great General Mattis, just now, who reconfirmed that, and I quote, Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you. you. Now, in the middle of all that, I cut it out, but there was a two-minute standing Standing ovation. Sweet. To the, point, really cool. to the point where I had it split screen because there was a basketball game on that I was trying to what? watch. What? Yeah. And so I'm watching the basketball game. I look over. They're still clapping? What are they talking? You know. <laughs> so. It was, I mean, really. Can I, can I just throw in a compliment yeah, here? Yeah. Terry is great at multitasking. Yeah. Yeah, Terry, you well, are. The game, the game was close. It was out of hand, and then they were coming back. And I was you, like, oh. Even if it's inappropriate multitasking, yeah. you're really good at it. Well, you know. Another compliment for compliment day. Now, the question with that situation, one, people said that is when they felt like President Trump became President yeah, that Trump. that was it. That he was did when... something presidential. Right. He honored a fallen soldier and his, yeah. his widow. And it was just – it was a really good moment. The problem, though, earlier in the day, he talked to the – he was talking with the media and he seemed to blame the Pentagon and uh, – the Obama administration for the failure of that military action. Right. So still he's... Well, I mean, that was earlier in the day. They claimed it was a success, but then he's blaming the Pentagon for planning things and the Obama administration for putting this whole thing in motion. He approved it, yeah. but it was already happening. It was something that was already in the works. And uh, well, NBC reported yesterday 
The senior intelligence uh, sources dispute White House characterization that the raid was a success. No significant intel as of yet, which would mean that the Trump that Trump isn't being honest about the success of that mission. And so it's kind of <laughs> comments like less than twelve hours before yeah. painting his comments during the State of the Union. He knows what's in the State of the oh, Union. Oh sure, not the State of the Union, but that that speech. And I don't know. It seems like he stepped on some toes. <laughs> it's, but again, don't. You don't have to listen to everything he says. That's what this that's, last that's, night he nailed it. He did, yeah, he looks really good. And, and honestly, it uh, I had never heard people uh, compliment him like that. They were it was they were getting ready for compliment day, and uh, today's just full of it. One compliment: the Washington Post does their fact checking on all these types of speeches. They were thirteen inaccuracies, and they said for Trump, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's <laughs> really good. That is a compliment. Uh, here's how he finished or concluded the speech. Um, clip eleven. To seize this moment, believe in yourselves, believe in your future, and believe once more in America. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless the United States. It was beautiful. Wow. Very presidential. One hour in length, so almost like, you know, like Clinton-esque. Very – it was good. And he stuck to the task and and did his job and uh, Melania Trump was there as well, vice president and and Mrs. Pence. It was was quite a party to be had by all and five of the justices, five of the eight. It was Elena Kagan. That's who I was trying to remember. She has – we'll put it up on my – on our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt Show. She just makes this face and I'm sure it was just her just like make maybe she just stubbed her toe. I don't know. Yeah. But she made this kind of grimace face. Can, can I give you a compliment? You know what? Yeah. You sure. are great at recalling names when it is too late. Do you know what? That is so true. And by the way, with the help of Googly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Googly. You are you are so good at remembering to bring your laptop every day. I bring it every day and I almost use it. Every day. Um, thank you. And you know what you're good at? Just so while we're giving out compliments. What's that? You're really good at um, giving a compliment that probably isn't a compliment. Thank you. I think they're called backhanded compliments. But you're really good at it. I just wanted you to know that. Happy uh, compliment day. Folks, take care of everybody around you. It's nothing but compliments today. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about conflicts of interest and how, uh, you know, Donald Trump, everyone's questioning if he has too many conflicts of interest. But we're going to get into some of the psychology behind it. You might be able to find out if you fall prey to believing uh, that you are above and beyond any conflicts of interest in your life. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This week, uh, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer insisted that there's been no links between President Trump's campaign and Russia. President Donald Trump and many in his cabinet have denied any of those conflicts of interest with any of their private businesses and other governments with, uh, with now that they're stepping into these new responsibilities. So how do you – how do you take – because Donald Trump in, in, his, in his cabinet are many, many business leaders, right? Billionaires, many of them. And um, how do you take these great leaders of companies and then bring them in to run governments without creating conflicts of interest 
it I, I wonder how possible it really is. So joining us today to talk about it is um, Dr. or Professor Elizabeth C. Tippett. She's an assistant professor at the University of Oregon School of Law and the faculty co-director of the master's program in conflict resolution. Dr. Tippett, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, talk about it. In your article about uh, why President-elect doesn't, Donald Trump doesn't think he has a conflict of interest, you wrote the article months ago before he was president. Is it possible nowadays to be to really be free of conflict of interest if you have a portfolio as large as Donald Trump? Uh, not the way he ended up setting up his business. Um, so, for example, you might contrast President Trump's current situation with that of his various nominees and cabinet members right. who are required to divest. They have to divest, oh, yeah. They have to divest. The president does not. Um, so um, his nominees are actually free and clear, and completely there is no opportunity for them to have a conflict of interest. Since the president did not divest his portfolio um, of real estate holdings and all of the other parts of his business, he still has a number of conflicts. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't end. And here's, I guess, Elizabeth, one of the things I uh, I worry about, not worry about, but I think, like, I would love Warren Buffett to be the president, um, <laughs> simply because he just seems to know how to find the right picks, create good success, work with people. But um, but to do that, they as president, I mean, really, to, and to be conflict of interest free, you, you would have to divest yourself of billion-dollar enterprises in their cases. Um, is, it, is, it, um, is it feasible? I don't know. I guess it is feasible because his cabinet's doing it. But Donald doesn't think that needs to happen. He doesn't, and... It's not clear why. What I hypothesize in my article is that he may simply be like the rest of us in, in terms that we are all a little bit blind to our own moral limitations. And we all think, um, based on psychology research, that we're more ethical than we actually are. Right. So he, like the rest of us, may think that he can overcome his conflicts of interest because he's a very ethical person and he's a very smart person. And so unlike the rest of us, he can he can navigate his way with his business and also the office of the presidency. That's true. Talk about the psychology behind a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, behind humans and, and a lot of the reasons why we don't, I mean, we don't think we're unethical and, but there's some pretty cool research that, that uh, teaches us that not only is it kind of human nature, but it's actually quite inaccurate. Sure. So we tend to overestimate how ethical we are. So one study asked people, will you buy a daffodil to support the American Cancer Society a few months hence? And 83% of people said, yes, of course, I'll buy a daffodil um, in a couple of months. But then when they actually followed up, only about 40-some percent of people actually bought the daffodil. Hmm. Um, But we want to think of ourselves as ethical, so we assume that we'll behave ethically when, you know, we, we don't always live up to our own expectations. So true. Um, There was another example involving the prisoner's dilemma. Um, The prisoner's dilemma is a game that rewards people for basically cheating on the other people playing in the game. And so they ask people, well, what are the odds that other people will cheat in this game? And 
Uh, turns out participants accurately estimated how frequently other people would cheat in the game, but they underestimated how frequently they themselves would cheat in the game. <laughs> We're just playing ourselves. I mean, Donald, uh, President Trump, in fact, has even said, I don't care about my company anymore. I care about the country. I'm here about, you know, I'm here for the country now. But even that, you how could you not care about your country, your company? And whether you don't care about it or not, it's still your children's company or they're still in charge of it and there's still inheritance. And you can't even just give the line really that you don't care. Sure. I think all of the conflicts of interest rules sort of in the ordinary course recognize that we're morally limited in that regard. And so, you know, for example, rules about business conflicts, if you work for a business, um, they assume that you can't, in, in the words of, um, of the legal rules, serve two masters. Um, so, you, so you can't um, serve your own business interests and also serve the interests of a company if you're working for a company. Um, and so they're very strict about, um, for example, taking, preventing you from having opportunities to take corporate opportunities for yourself, for your own personal benefit, because they know that we're always tempted. And so, um, for example, the laws around cabinet members remove the opportunity entirely on the assumption that we as humans are limited and 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 so to not present that opportunity in the first place because they know we're tempted. Hmm. And this conflict of interest, I mean you're a law professor. This this is and and like you're talking about our own every company has conflict of interest, you know, clauses that you still may have to sign and th- this is universal to human nature. So I mean, Donald – President Trump was running for the highest office in the world and uh, had a you know multibillion-dollar company. He, of all people, you would think would, um, would fall prey to it maybe. But also there's just – I guess there's the need to be humble about it, right? There's, there's almost a need for humility for all of us in our situations to not step into that trap of you know, falling for the conflict. Absolutely. Let me tell you about one other experiment that I liked, um, and it, it demonstrates a principle known as moral hypocrisy. This is actually a term of art. Um, they, the experimenters told people, uh, we're going to assign you this really boring task that nobody likes to do. But wait, we're actually going to give you a couple of options. One option is you could actually give the boring task to somebody else. And the other option is you can put your name in a hat and the computer will decide whether you have to do the boring task or someone else has to do the boring task. Which do you choose? <laughs> now, they asked people who were observing this experiment um, to watch someone who's, who, who assigned the boring task to someone else. And they, on average, rated the, that as pretty unfair to assign the boring task to someone else. But when, then when people were actually in the experiment, if they assigned the boring task to someone else, they rated that as, you know, pretty fair. So, the, you know, we judge others more harshly than ourselves, and, and maybe we're not entirely objective about the way we think about our own moral choices. That's it's, – it's so funny because um, when you bring in the research and we – I would love that each one of the listeners could experience any of these examples you've given us because – Humans, we tend to constantly overestimate our abilities under and and you know and prop up our intentions and motives as good. But I guess the thing I keep hearing you say is, in time, the inherent nature of man is to slide, and eventually <laughs> we're going to slide into the conflict. Talk about why it's so dangerous. Why are these conflicts of interest really? Why is it such a big deal? 
Well, so I guess I can give you a few examples involving President Trump. I, broadly, the problem is that conflicts of interest essentially act as a tax on the, on the government, on the American people, if the president makes decisions that favor the president's personal interests over interests of the people. So, um, for example, the president spent 11 of the first 33 days in, in office at his uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, resort. Now, perhaps... He would have done that anyways, even if he didn't own Mar-a-Lago Resort. And he has promised to provide profits from foreign dignitaries using his hotels um, back to the Treasury. But when he goes to his own resort, he, he's very savvy about branding. He's very savvy. And he knows that the president visiting this resort enriches the brand. And in fact, Mar-a-Lago doubled its prices after the election because the brand is more valuable, especially if it means proximity to the president, possibly access to the president. Um, but it cost the American people a lot of money to fly him down to Florida. And so those costs, to the extent they wouldn't be incurred if he, if he didn't do that, um, those operate as a tax on the public. Hmm. It's like, it is, yeah. You're being, you're being taxed, and he's, and he's benefiting, except um, – I guess that was different when President George Herbert Walker Bush would go to his property at Kenny Bunkport. I mean, that property value went up simply because the president's there, I'm assuming. But he wasn't enriching a brand. Is that the difference? Right. He he wasn't enriching a brand. And also, well, I mean, one thing we'll never know is the frequency with which um, you're incurring these expenses on behalf of the public. So would you be would the president be going um, to this? Um, vacation home as frequently mm. didn't provide as much of a of a benefit. That's interesting. Well, and then uh, George W. Bush went to where did he go? Texas, Crawford, Texas, mm-hmm. in this tiny little dive of a, not right. dive. It sounded horrible. I'm sure it was very nice. But um, <laughs> remember, and he would just go work and just oh. like you know pull the brush <laughs> out. And but oh. I guess so. I guess this is about enriching brand, enriching business, and. And then um, you mentioned other things about, you know, wind farms on some of his other near some of his other properties. And he's he's, you know, as I guess even running for president had made comments about the wind farms and the impact on property. So um, there are, I guess, wind farms that interfere with the view of one of his golf courses, golf courses in Scotland. And he had raised this. Um, before he was uh, inaugurated, he had raised this with one of the Brexit leaders as something that was irritating to him. You know, the fear in a situation like that is that some foreign government would provide preferential treatment for one of his properties and that in return they would expect some concession on some matter of public import. Mm. Um, I should say, you know, the longer I've been thinking about this, though, I do think that some of his conflicts, are kind of a mixed bag, and it's possible it's possible that some of them might actually be helpful to the American public. Yeah, give us an example of that. So, um, uh, a couple of days after President Trump announced the One China policy, which is I, I think which is favorable to the to the American people and which is um, consistent with past practice, mm-hmm. uh, China uh, approved a ten-year trademark uh, for the president's company. Now, maybe it was totally unrelated. Uh, and it had nothing to do with um, the president's decision. And maybe, and maybe China was trying to curry favor with the president for having made a decision that was correct. Um, but I think 
the president's ties to overseas in some ways uh, reminds the president of our close relationships and our dependence on, on other countries. And for a president who's otherwise isolationist, I think reminders that we are intertwined with other economies in the world is not terrible. I, I do not want to trade war with China. And if his ties to businesses in China reminds him that trade wars are a problem, I might be okay with that. Yeah, it's interesting because he does have a worldview and his worldview is business in his world. And so um, maybe that is how he would end up, you know, I guess now in the infancy of his presidency, maybe he'll mature through this to see having another kind of worldview. I think we're so used to having politically adept, skilled, true global politicians, you know, running for president, people that know how to talk to a lot of different people on their global issues and understanding all the global issues. Interesting stuff, folks. Let's take a break, come back, and continue our discussion with Elizabeth Tippett on conflicts of interest and how we, when we come back, we'll be talking about how we personally can make sure we are more careful about uh, not breaking some of those some of those more subtle, subtle promises we make to our employers and to our country. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about conflicts of interest and, uh, you know, President Donald Trump. Many were pursuing him and frustrated, angry with the idea that uh, he's got so many business interests and, you know, it's setting him up for having conflicts of interest that eventually could, you know, impact his judgment, that could sway some of his decision making. We've asked uh, Liz, um, Elizabeth Tippett to join us. Elizabeth is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon School of Law and the faculty co-director of the master's program in conflict resolution. Um, She also has uh, co-authored the fifth edition of the West Academic Textbook, Employment Discrimination and Employment Law, and is here today to talk about an article she wrote about on conflicts of interest. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. This – you make a really interesting point in your article that this isn't just Donald Trump that could do this. You're saying even Batman or Iron Man would do this – could fall to similar problems. Well, sure. And earlier you mentioned Warren Buffett. Um, But if Warren Buffett were elected president, I would also expect Warren Buffett to divest of his holdings so that we could be sure that he was free and clear of conflicts of interest. Because it's not something you just – your your article suggests it's not something you just use just personal character and your will power to to make sure you avoid the conflicts – Because there may be some conflicts you're not even consciously aware of. Sure, absolutely. And there's also the optics of it and the messaging it sends. Even if um, President Trump were able to completely divorce himself from his conflicts of interest, um, while those conflicts remain, there remains questions about all of his judgments, especially including domestic matters, but also foreign matters, and about whether um, his various holdings influenced his decisions making. And that's 
I think that's problematic for um, how we view our government and how others view our government. Yeah. Do you take this kind of to our more local level? Um, I Every year we do a review here at BYU, and as part of that we sign a conflict of interest paper document. And so talk about what the average citizen should be doing to make sure they're not falling into problems just at work, that they're not falling into issues – um, in their own, you know, kind of business life? Um, so what I, the sort of psychological principles I describe in the article fall under a larger category known as motivated reasoning. And motivated reasoning is the idea that when we approach a problem, we already have in mind a certain result that we prefer and that we tend to um, select facts that favor the outcome we prefer and engage in reasoning that favor the outcome we prefer. Just so for one example of that is we like to think of ourselves as ethical people, and so we view all the facts around our behavior in a way that is consistent with our view, um, and we ignore the things that are inconsistent with our view. And so I think the broader message for us um, generally is to be open to facts that are unfriendly to us and the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about um, things in the world, and to be open to um, when other people say to us, hey, I, I saw you do this, I disagree with you, and, and let's talk about it, to be open to their point of view and the facts they raise and the arguments they provide, um, because we're all vulnerable to motivated reasoning. And, and yeah, and try to, I guess, try to see it from the view of the employer, not from this, uh, you know, Pollyanna-ish view of ourselves. Yeah, um, I guess the other insight that uh, psychology research provides us, and um, I think the Wells Fargo situation is a good example of this, is ethics is situational. We like to think that our ethics are solely a function of our morality, but we're often influenced by cues in our environment and the behavior of people in our environment. And so part of being an ethical person actually involves thinking carefully about the environments that we place ourselves in and deciding ahead of time, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to work for a company where people are cutting corners, um, where people don't care about customers, um, or where people treat other employees poorly because we know that we are going to be influenced by the behavior of those around us and more likely than not will engage in those behaviors as well. Mm. And, I mean, it's, I guess because it's situational and like we, we saw with Wells Fargo, you know, ethical people can help keep people more ethical. It seems like because if it's situational, we can create yeah. we can create conditions, you know, and and make be pushing harder on conflict of interest statements and and pointing out problems. But I guess unethical people would also create more unethical situations, which makes it more likely that people will slide. Yes, that's exactly right. So part of this, I guess, too, is not just hope it, not just leave it up to will, but leave it up to just the highest standard of of ethics, which would be in the president's case, divesting. Um, and, and are there ways to do that that you could see? Because I mean, some of the some of these questions are not even. Some of these are just were they talking with the Russians beforehand, and right. th- that creates other issues. And and you can start to see how. You know, if all of a sudden the Russians had information on President Trump that wasn't so nice, they might be able to sway uh, people. So, there's, I mean, there's a million different ways to handle this. How, how do you see that the president today could, could handle moving forward in a way that would, would maybe take the highest level ethically? 
okay, well, let's assume for a moment that he doesn't divest or anything like that. I still think there's room for him to improve his behavior. For example, the situation involving um, his daughter Ivanka's dispute with Nordstrom's, Mm. where he sent out a tweet blaming Nordstrom's for it. Um, That created a scandal, but what you also saw in that situation was poor messaging from the top in terms of leadership and and modeling. And one problem that produced was the people below him thought it was okay to repeat what he said. But those people below him were actually subject to the more stringent ethics rules. So you saw um, Kellyanne Conway get in trouble for essentially repeating what he said. So my advice would be for him to monitor himself more closely because he does set an example for others in government. Well, that's true. And it it is strange to me that we have the president living such a different standard than his cabinet. Why is that? Well, so the cabinet rules were uh, congressional legislation. And at that time, for various reasons, Congress decided they didn't want to subject the president to those rules. And I think partly because all the presidents for the last 40 years have essentially behaved in ways that were Mm -hmm. consistent with the ethics rules, and so they may have thought it was unnecessary. They may have not contemplated a situation like the one we're in now. It's true. And I mean, I don't think any of us did, Elizabeth. But but I guess two part of this is about, I mean, even the taxes, the release of taxes would at least give some transparency that might make some people think that he could manage this better. Yes, that's also part of it. Part We don't actually know the extent of his conflicts of interest without his tax returns. So some of the concerns may be unfounded right. or that may be worse than we imagine. <laughs> I do think that the tax returns might help clear the air, especially if the concerns are unfounded. And and then it goes then it goes to his argument that, you know, the media is going to make anything they can out of this. And so I can't trust the media because they're just going to skewer me anyway. So. I mean, I guess this is where it becomes all this circular reasoning. But in the end, what I hear you saying, too, though, is if if we're not transparent and if we don't have the highest levels of uh, of managing our conflicts of interest, then trust is going to suffer. We just yes, we won't trust you. Right. The democracy depends heavily on trust. One of the things that's different about our democracy than democracies that have formal voting systems like ours but don't work very well is because we trust in our government, we trust in the judiciary, we trust in the legislature, we have civil society. Those things are critical to our democracy. And I think, um, you know, one direction this could go in is it makes us care more about laws and construct more rules. But the other direction it could go is we really distrust our government. And and that's really fundamentally problematic. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, in a crazy way, because uh, I hear all the conservatives fighting, you know, just forget talking about Trump's taxes. We don't care about his taxes. Um, OK, so you can love your candidate and your president, but eventually the tide will change. And if this is the standard we're creating, then this is the standard that the next person could live. And I think we, we might want to leave it to the highest standard so that we don't right. have to go through this and have different rules for different people. Well, the other thing that is probably happening is um, he's giving a bargaining, bargaining to chip to Congress. So any time that he engages in some sort of misdeed that Congress is willing to overlook, Congress might eventually change their mind about how they feel about this president. And in that case, he might be in a bit of hot water because they'll have um, more fodder for yeah. investigations or impeachment. So I don't know if it's a good strategic choice on his part. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, 
I guess as we wrap up, Elizabeth, to me, there's one there's this level of this going on with our president and everyone. I just noticed that we everyone gives so much energy to the president um, and everything that's going on there. But in reality, this these same principles apply to us in our own lives. And we we ought to live the highest standard we can as well. Absolutely. I think once we're more honest with ourselves about the ethical choices we make in life, and at least this certainly happened with me, you notice all of the different ways that you make bad ethical yeah. choices in everyday life. And it's a little bit unsettling at first. But at least when you're more aware of it, it provides a, another choice point for you to make better decisions every day. Absolutely. And, and then a little better decision, you know, might create a little better system, might create a little better policy. And it doesn't mean you, you just have to communicate. I think that's what a lot of this is about, is being more open, more transparent in what we're doing and how we're doing it. Elizabeth Tippett, thank you so much for uh, your article and your insight on this. Again, remember, Elizabeth is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon School of Law and the faculty director of their master's program in conflict resolution, helping us be better people, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I think last night's presidential uh, address to, to the joint sessions of Congress taught taught us something really interesting. Uh, Donald Trump is being praised at, at a level, uh, even almost in a bipartisan way, at a level I haven't seen ever. Um, and a lot of that came from his willingness to reach out to the other side of the aisle and and address some of their issues, I guess, a little more directly, not to be as um, bombastic, I guess. But it goes to this this issue we've been talking about with trust. And it's again, it's easy to beat up a candidate or a presidential uh, or a president um, like Donald Trump because he, he seems to violate some of these rules so so obviously, except he also won. Right. And as part of this process, though, there is a principle. Um, Gandhi taught a really cool thought that says, democracy will break under the strain of apron strings. It can exist only on trust. And so, again, to me, the principle behind why people are frustrated with, with Donald isn't just to spew rhetoric. For some, it is. But for some, it's the principle of trust. And I think President Trump is learning that he can change his tone. He even mentioned this on Fox News in an interview, that he thinks his messaging has been about a C. His his effort has been about an A+. He's, he's worked really hard, but he needs to improve his messaging. And I think his team also needs to improve the, the messaging because th- this, this is still a, a democracy – is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and the operating principle of working with people is trust. There's a great uh, quote that says, "High trust cultures pay uh, high, low trust cultures pay high taxes. So the less trust we have, the more it costs us to do everything. The more trust we have, the less expensive it is to do everything, because we can we can trust the legislative process, we can trust the courts." We can trust the people that are called to service. So trust, folks. And it's not a political thing. It's your thing. Do you possess trust? Are you trustworthy? Do people follow you? Do they listen to you? Because if not, it might be about trust. 
hour number one. That's it, folks. We'll be back. Stick with us. Next hour, more fun, more ideas to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the show where we give you the solutions you need to have a healthier, happier life. And we got a great one for you today because all these kids are now bringing laptops to go to all their classes. You got to go, you got to have a laptop, you got to have an iPad, you got to have all this technology. But is this technology actually improving their note taking in class? Is, is surfing, is it helping? And uh, the research is saying not so much. Isn't still the best way pen and paper? Pen and to paper. Do notes? To, yeah. re- to re- try to retain some yeah. of that. Because you, you exert more energy, so you have to reframe your thinking to save energy. And uh, by reframing it and rewriting it you and putting it in your own words, you actually retain. It's pretty cool. I've tried to take notes recently. Yeah. I can't do it. I've, I've tried five different ways on the show because I have so many guests with great ideas. I want to capture them. So, but it goes back to my notebook. My notebook's the best way to do it. Yeah. And I just wanted to compliment. Uh, today is a very special day. It's World Compliment Day. Mm. <sighs> you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people like carry because we have a fountain machine here where you can get drinks and get anything you want. I mean, you can get almost any drink you want unless it's a Coke product. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's great and. Jeff's chewing his ice. Yeah. But I looked over and Jeff has – I wanted to just compliment you, Jeff. You've got the greatest cup. It's wonderful. Thank you. Is it is it a Disney princess cup? It is a frozen cup. Oh, it's has gorgeous. Anna and Elsa on it mm. looking very sisterly. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Pink and blue. Kind of – Yeah. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't carry a cup like that. So I just wanted right. to compliment you. I they mean, a lot their, of grown men wouldn't. They let their four-year-old girl just right. be able to have yeah. that, and that would be her cup. But it'd, you, be, it'd be the girl's cup, the okay. four-year-old girl's cup. That's great. I would like to compliment you as well, Matt, on, on my, your thermos with your name on it, yeah. by the way. I'm not quite sure if that's so you don't forget whose it is. No, I, I carry it so you all remember who I am. If So, yeah. <laughs> so you carry a security, a name tag on your... yeah. My daughter gave me that. And it's a thermos, I, by the way, that you can put ice in it, and it lasts for like an ice age. Case in mm. point, President Trump has an airplane with his name on it. Right. Huh? Matt Townsend has right. a water bottle with his name on it. Mine, uh, right. My Same cup thing. actually keeps ice cold as well because it is a frozen cup. Yeah. I'll, I'll take my cup head-to-head with your cup any day. But yours is definitely more, I don't know, princessy than mine. Today we've got so much to talk about. It's World Compliment Day. By the way, and Terry, we wanted to compliment you yeah. for just being you. Just being me. And all that you are, mm. which is so much. Very creative on the uh, compliment there. Thanks. It's, it, you bet. It's also Pig Day. Yes. And it's Peanut Butter Lovers Day. Are we I, ready for me to hand out these Reese's pieces that somebody just left here? I think we've done our due diligence. I think we've tried. Uh, we've made two or three announcements. And so, it's been here since Friday. Right. And we don't want them to spoil. I mean, think of the people in wherever that don't have Reese's peanut butter. Oh, no. What are they? Uh, Reese's pieces. Yeah. Okay. So one of two things is happening. Either the student who purchased them is just using the studio as his own personal storage area. Right, right. Um, or 
people that come in here are slowly starting to chip away at the candy because the candy is decreasing. Maybe it was left for everybody and we didn't get a memo. Hmm. Or maybe they're baiting us like a bunch of pigs and, you know, we'll all end up on a fire pit tonight. Wow. Drugged hmm. and – There's a thought. By the way, when it's we go to commercial, I'll have to play our the trailer uh, for the movie The Swining. Oh, I love that movie. Or just Pig Day. It was it was a lot like The Shining, but it involved pigs mm. because it is Pig Day. It's also um, uh, it's the day. It's Wednesday. It's Hump Day. And the week's half over. Oh, okay. I make it sound like I don't like my weeks, mm. but I really do. I just want them to go by as fast as possible. <laughs> too. Yeah. I just really want to get to my weekends when <laughs> I can sleep in a dead bit. Uh, we'll talk about all that fun. Plus some empty news coming up. Uh, empty news. Matt Townsend news. Stories. Some stories you didn't even know you needed to know. But they're that, they're that important. They're that good. Um, also, we will uh, just, of course, be having our news headlines. In fact, let's start there, Terry. What, uh, what's going on around the rest of the country that we should be paying attention to? President Trump, as it says here, wowed supporters and skeptics alike. Tuesday night during his address to a joint session of Congress. But what remained unsaid might have been as very important as as what was said, according to Politico. Mm. There was things he did not address. Trump shed many of his usual hallmarks, including talk of his electoral college win. I said he'd probably put it out there. He yeah, did he not. Did. There was a moment I was waiting for it. It didn't happen. Good. So uh, da, 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 da. he was uh, or unfair treatment by the press. He didn't talk about. He talked about that. I don't know. Did he mention the media? I can't remember. No, I don't. I know. Yeah, he's really restrained there. But Which might mean he's learning, right? He's Because it does take time to learn and get your voice. Or just maybe was, he's getting his voice. Maybe it was cut from the final draft. But there were some strategic admissions or omissions as, as well. Trump, for example, became the first president since George W. Bush in 2001, not to mention either Afghanistan or Iraq. Trump also skipped mention of Syria and only briefly mentioned the fight with ISIS. While he still referenced radical Islamic terrorism, Trump elsewhere moderated his message and significantly scaled back his usual combative portrait of the world. He also seemed to stick to his promise from the opening of the speech to deliver a message of unity by steering clear of topics like abortion, same-sex marriage, transgender rights, defunding Planned Parenthood did not get a mention, nor did overturning Roe versus Wade, which are all things he's, he's spoken of in the past. She, she, he mentioned, yeah, what was it you just said? Uh, he mentioned the um, giving time off for people. Yes, I mean, child care. Child care. I mean, that was stuff you would never have heard Republicans bring up right. historically. So, cool. Kind of interesting yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Trump in his address to Congress says he wants the United States to establish a merit-based system for immigration, which he says will save countless of dollars, raise workers' wages, and help struggling families, including immigrant families, enter the middle class. He told Congress the National Academy of Sciences has said the current immigration system costs American taxpayers many billions of dollars a year. But the Associated Press says the report actually states that immigrants contribute to a government finances by paying taxes and adding expenditures by consuming public services. Looking at first-generation immigrants compared to people born in the U.S., the report said the immigrants are typically more expensive for state and local governments, but immigrants' children are among the strongest economic and fiscal contributors in the population. Yeah. So you get past that first generation right. to get started, their kids are and raring to earlier go. in the day, they were tossing out the idea, they were teasing the idea that maybe he would mention dreamers and a legalization, a pathway to legalize these people, and then that never came up. No. But 
it's interesting that they're teasing the idea. So yeah. it might mean they're they're going to go there. Didn't the he end with dreamers? I thought he said keep dreaming, keep being positive. I don't think Didn't he was talking something? about. Yeah, I think he's talking about just all Americans just, should keep dreaming. Keep, I see keep dreams and hopes yeah. alive. Uh, two memoirs by Barack and Michelle Obama have been nabbed by Penguin Random House for a reported record sum of at least $60 million. They're each writing a book, but it's being sold together as this deal yeah. for $60 million with Penguin Random Unbelievable. House. Unbelievable. Uh, let's see. That, the former presidents and first ladies, uh, they're writing separate books, jointly selling the global rights for their products. Major publishers like Shiman & Schuster, HarperCollins were in the running. Historically, a $60 million sum far outpaces all of their deals offered to former presidents. Bill Clinton was paid $15 million for his book. Uh, George W. Bush received 10 for his. The crazy thing about that, they're probably not even the ones writing it. So $60 million to have somebody else do the work for you. Right. It's. I mean, on that is. How much was uh, Clinton's? Fifteen. That's crazy. I mean, Clinton's was juicy. Right. Th- this is th- that's sixty million. And the reality is, the book probably won't make sixty million. I mean, a lot of times they pay these upfront fees, right. and then the money doesn't actually come to fruition because they're not. They're going to get sixty million. They're not going to get another penny unless it makes more than sixty million. And usually they don't ever get another penny. Unless, of course, it's sold at airports. And well, no, even if it's it, sold right? at airports, I mean, even the best sellers are still – most books aren't big money makers. They're right. loss leaders. Do we know how much they made for that movie that came out about them, Southside with you? I think it was what it was called where they it – go, it shows their first date or something like that. No, I never saw it. I never no, saw I it. It's on Netflix. They made a movie? Finally, despite the president's escalating war against the press, the media is actually enjoying something of a renaissance in the Trump era. Shares in the New York Times Company have climbed 42 percent. Times added 2,700 uh, or 2,000 or 200,000 subscriptions because holy of, cow, uh, three million subscriptions overall in the fourth. That was in the fourth quarter. The 276,300 million overall, and they're not alone. Washington Post, Wall Street Journal are also seeing increased subscriptions and page views. Cable Network, CN, Fox, and MSNBC each saw a 40% or higher viewership jump in the first six weeks of 2017. So, so, so th- these, these, this media, come on, you owe Donald Trump. It's the lying media, but where are you going to read what Trump calling them the lying media? You have to go somewhere to see you that go to the media. read that, right? So, you got to go to the lying media. The lying media. That are now making But money. what we learned, the leaks are real. The news is false. Fake news. Right. Of course. See? Piece of cake. Piece of cake. Um, (laughs) I really – people still can't get over uh, Kellyanne Conway on the couch. Yes. Now people are saying it's sexist because like a 40, 50-year-old female in a skirt can't kneel on the president's sofa in front of 50 – African American university leaders, right? Like she can't do that. I read. Don't one, be sexist. One woman yesterday I read said that whenever people are taking pictures, you see them get in all sorts of positions to get the right photo framed correctly, type yeah. of thing, and say whatever. She's on the couch. No big deal. Then another person, another group of people are saying, "How disrespectful! You would never do that with a room full of white CEOs. You would never do that." Right. It's a race thing, of course. So isn't it interesting? So then everybody takes their angle and – but the reality is is Kellyanne Conway gets beat up either way. Yeah. She can't win. 
She can't with that. She could. But, but Just, then again, I think maybe she's she's left herself open with things that she has done. Oh, well, like for everyone to criticize her. So. Do you know what? My grandma would have come unglued on her. Get your feet off of the sofa. Yeah, she's got her shoes on, so there is a... Oh, you know what's going to happen? I guarantee you. Donald Trump's going to have to put plastic aligners all over the sofas now. Right. Like they used to have those vinyl covers on the sofas. If she's going to keep getting scuff That's marks. probably something someone of his age group would more likely <laughs> do anyways. So. Oh, now we've got ageism. Now and that's all ageism. We've got racism, See? sexism, and ageism. It's the perfect story. The perfect story. Hey, um, just some empty news for you. Empty meaning Matt Townsend news. Man, there's some depth issues too. Go ahead. Come again? Go, just fine. What was that? No, no, just a slight criticism on a, the day we're supposed to compliment each other. So yeah, take today's the day want. of complimenting. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. By the way, I wanted to compliment you for pulling back your attack. On on the depth of the Well, emptiness. I didn't pull back the attack. I just kind of smoothed it over. And we oh, yeah, on. for yeah. backhandedly yeah. giving that one. <laughs> Thanks for going ninja on it. Yep. A sword-wielding felon threatens customers in a parking lot of uh, Florida Walmart. Hmm. What's the deal with swords? Florida police arrested a man, they say, was swinging swords at customers at a Walmart. Can you buy swords at Walmart? Um, you can bring swords to Walmart, apparently. Oh, sure. Like well, that's a given. Toy swords. But you can't buy, like, they sell no, guns and ammo. Can you buy a sword? Can't get, like, a katana sword yeah. there? There's a channel on my cable system. I know. You're addictive. My knife show where you can buy, like, the 100-piece set, and it's yeah. got, like, three katana swords. You always oh, come in the... so tired on Thursday nights because it's then, katana sword night. And then they tell you, they go, you can go to the swap meet and sell these for, like, $4 a piece. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one I use to cut my shoes with. Yeah. Why? They they do? Walmart does sell samurai swords, oh. according to McKenna. Apparently it's on their website. Well, then not anymore. Uh, the responding <laughs> officers were called to the store manager who said someone was threatening customers in the parking lot. When they got there, they found Shannon Shank with a... Shank? With a sh- uh, shiv. <laughs> Shannon Shank with a shiv, carrying huh. two swords and appearing to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Mm. Weird. Yeah, it's strange. Did Shannon Shank shiv by the seashore? Was this Walmart oh, by the seashore? the hardest... I I always used to say that to practice before getting on the air. Shannon Shank shivs seven people by the seashore. Several witnesses told Officer Shank had assumed a fighting stance and then unsheathed the swords in a threatening manner while approaching customers exiting their vehicles. Hmm. That would be terrifying. Yeah. You're just going in to Walmart and maybe pick up some prescriptions. Next thing you know, you got Shannon Shank unsheathing. Shannon Shank unsheathed. His sword and shivved before sheathing by the seashore. Ooh, be careful. That's really good. So, moral of the story? Jeff, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is you can take anything you want with you to Walmart as long as you don't yield it as a weapon. Or, yeah, unsheathe, unsheathe it. Great moral. It's a great something to live by, right there. Put that on your princess cup. Meme it. Uh, <laughs> one more story for you. A Florida man remains jailed after he took a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar Maserati on a test drive. Then allegedly stole the car. So it started with a test drive. 
Then he took off in it. Michael Lewis McGilvery, 45, walked into the Ferrari Maserati of Fort Lauderdale dealership. There he goes. He's not coming back. That guy's not coming back. Uh, And he said he wanted to drive um, the car to Boca Raton Resort and Club to show the car to his girlfriend. Once they reached the resort, McGilvery told the salesman he wanted to go inside to show him his father's boat. The report said the men reached the facility uh, boat dock when McGilvery said he'd be right back with his girlfriend. So he ditched the car salesman at at the the dock. dock. 30 minutes later, the salesman realized, hey, something's not happening. Something's gone gone wrong here. And when the salesman returned to the valet area, he noticed the Maserati gone. The valet supervisor told the salesman that uh, the guy had jumped into the Maserati and he left. Oh, yeah, he's gone. Connecting McGilvery to the stolen vehicle was easy for Boca Raton police. McGilvery presented his driver's license before he was allowed to test drive the Maserati, and the valet supervisor at the Boca Raton resort had known McGilvery for years. Man. There's also, by the way, surveillance video. So there's a pretty – there's an open and shut case. He denied it though, didn't he? They asked him – they said, this is you, and he said – Says who? Says who? After his arrest, McGilvery was shown the video of his presence at the dealership and denied he was the person on the video. I thought, Amy, what? Your your camera is faulty. <laughs> you got a smudge on your camera. Anyway, folks, come on. Thou shalt not steal. You know better than that. But it's definitely a better crime than unsheathing a sword at a Walmart. You know what? I want to compliment this guy. Yeah. Of all the crimes out there, he chose one that involved a uh, a very nice-looking, expensive car. If you're going to commit a crime, do it with style. He's do got it, style. Do it at the Yacht Club. That is the old bait-and-switch trick. Always works at the Yacht Club. Anyway, fun times. We, uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the truth about Internet surfing and uh, having a laptop to take notes at school is it really effective stick with us this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world in today's classroom it's fairly common to see students taking notes on laptops instead of notebooks using phones instead of calculators there is no doubt that having a desktop computer or a laptop in school is useful for writing papers gathering information and learning how to program and use software in fact there are some schools that will provide low-cost laptops for their students because becoming tech savvy is so essential you know before graduating college um, especially if you want to have any shot of uh, having a future career. But as, you know, as would seem obvious, surfing the Internet during class, you know, having Wi-Fi and access to Wi-Fi may not necessarily uh, be helping learning as much as maybe hindering it. Dr. Susan Ravisa joins us. She's a professor of psychology at Michigan State University. She's here with us this morning to talk about some research she's been doing about the negative side effects of using laptops in class. Dr. Ravisa, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for asking me to talk with you today. This, it's, it's kind of, uh, it seems obvious, but, it, but not so much so. Is, do you see technology positively impacting 
the classroom at the university level? I think it just depends. Um, if you have a classroom setup where people or where students are doing uh, internet-related activities or computer-based activities, I think it could help. Um, and but in other contexts, it might hinder classroom learning. What? Uh, where do you see um, it's it's impacting the most negatively? Where is it hindering? Well, uh, what I've looked at is a lecture-based classes um, where there's no reason why students have to be on the internet. So students usually bring their laptops and they will take notes or something on their laptop um, instead of by hand. Uh, And what happens is they end up getting distracted and they, uh, the more they use the internet, the worse they do on the final exam. Um, So, you know, we also found that using it for classroom purposes uh, had no effect, so it didn't benefit uh, performance on, in the class. What, it seems like, I mean, I went through college without a laptop on my, you know, in the, in the classroom mm-hmm. with me, but I was still distracted. So distraction yeah. in classrooms kind of an age-old issue. That's right. I, and I don't think people are more distracted you know, uh, because of the um, of technology, um, but I do think there's something about uh, bringing a laptop and internet use in particular that's engaging. So in the past, you know, I used to doodle in classes, yeah. um, but that's not quite as engaging. And also, you know, if you have your laptop, you might be getting notifications or things that call your attention to it. That's true. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> now, so now it's only, it's intrusive, right? It's interruptive. Uh, messaging too, right? So yeah. before we had to like make up our distraction. That's right. You know, and of course you can daydream in class as well, um, but you know, it's not kind of capturing your attention in the same way as your smartphone or your laptop. So it has, uh, I guess recently the, the majority or more of your research has been, I guess, about internet, internet connectability during class. Mm-hmm. Talk, about, talk about your research study, how you went about it and what you've been learning. Uh, So what we did was we asked students in Psychology 101, which is an introductory course, um, if they would participate in the study, and if they agreed, they logged into a proxy server that we had set up. Um, And this proxy server would track all the URLs or the website addresses um, that they would connect to. And so we could measure, we had this objective measure of how much time they spent on different sites um, and how many HTTP requests they made, so how many times they downloaded data or requested data. Hmm. Um, and so we got these measures, and we broke them up into different categories like social media, shopping, watching videos. Um, and then we just simply looked at how much time people spent um, using the Internet and how that related to their exam scores. Boy, that is scary. Um, did, and I guess they didn't know – they just knew they were using a proxy server. They didn't know exactly what you were looking up. You know, they did. We told them that we were tracking all their Internet use, hmm. um, and we also told them to log out at the end of the class because we would keep 
you know, monitoring or collecting data <laughs> if they, they didn't. didn't log out. And several students would forget. So I don't think that it was a big concern to them. Oh, interesting. Isn't that weird? I guess that's kind of we've talked on the show a lot about security issues and how certain generations no longer expect very much privacy. That's right. So, um, and, you know, we also asked them, did you change your internet browsing because you knew you were being monitored? Mm. And they said they were just as using the internet just the same way that they did in other classes. Unbelievable. So when, um, it was also interesting, if I recall, in your study, many people didn't remember to sign on to the server. Uh, You were just saying they didn't might remember to sign off as well. So, which again is part of the issue is, I guess, remembering being a part of, uh, you know, gathering data. It's always hard to get a data sample, but usually in a psychology class, this seems like some pretty ripe data. What what ended up coming out in the data? What did you notice? What were they doing while they yeah. were surfing during class? Well, um, on average, people spent almost a third of the class um, on internet browsing that was not related to the class. Um, so that's a significant chunk um, of time. And the most, so when we looked at the relationship to exam scores, the biggest relationship was between watching videos um, and using social media. So the more you did those things, the worse the student did on the final exam. Interesting. Yeah. Videos and, so- and social media. So the more you were, they were watching videos and social media, the more their test scores dropped. That's right. Huh. Uh, shopping was close to being significantly related. Um, I didn't realize how much time students were spending shopping for clothes and things in class. Um, but And so that was also uh, a big time consumer for Internet use. And was it consistent? Was it significantly correlated then or almost? Uh, it was close. Okay. Wow. So those are the top three. Any other things you notice? Any other shockers on <laughs> I mean, was there any inappropriate stuff being looked up? Was it, I mean, because that, there's just so much data you could gather from this sample. Yeah, right. Um, I think we did know one URL that had the word porn in it. Hmm. So, Oops. Um, that, there was one instance of that. Mostly people were just looking up random things. Like I have a list of the wiki sites that people went to during class. Things like the longest NCAA Division One football winning, um, <laughs> looking up Stars Hollow, which is the town in the Gilmore Girls, um, <laughs> brown mat- mountain lights, ghost lights in North Carolina. So um, I guess I was surprised at kind of the range of topics people were looking up. Um, uh, and also that students were doing homework for other classes in the, their psychology class. So we noticed, I noticed a lot of foreign language site entries, and I thought that um, maybe people, international students might be translating words, but a few students had said they were actually doing their Spanish homework in, in class. Interesting. So did you have any idea as a teacher beforehand that this was that this it was going on to this this scope this level. No, I really didn't because of course that when you're the instructor, all you see is the laptop logo. You right. can't see what's going on, um, and so I thought it was maybe a little bit of um, you know non class related activity going on, but I didn't realize the extent of it. 
Um, and I also thought that maybe some of the students could handle that kind of uh, browsing. You know, there's a lot of repetition in class, and I thought, okay, well, maybe someone takes a few seconds to check an email, probably no big deal. Uh, but, you know, even we had looked at intelligence by looking at ACT scores, the achievement test scores, and it didn't matter how well you placed on those tests, that the relationship still held. The more you use the Internet for non-class-related purposes, the worse you did the, on the final exam. Unbelievable. That's um, – because, too, I, it seems like it, it's dependent on person. Some people maybe could handle this opportunity to be able to surf and not be as distracted by it. Is there – how do you measure distractibility in a human? Do you, was that part of your study? Well, we were trying to get at multitasking ability by looking at the intelligence, um, and we didn't find, you know, that intelligence helps you any in being able to multitask. Mm, right. Um, but there's some work uh, by a different group looking at impulsivity. So the more impulsive you are, the worse you are at delaying gratification, the more you're constantly checking your smartphone. So there may be a relationship with being able to inhibit uh, behavior. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, oh boy, and and so you in your data, a third of the class was browsing non-related topics during right, well, class. It wasn't a third of the class; it was a third of the time. A third of the time, yeah, <laughs> everyone, everyone who participated. So we got about um, so there was a, this was a huge class of five hundred students, and we got about eighty to a hundred people who we were looking at. <laughs> Unbelievable. So uh, how much of the time were they actually using the internet on uh, topics related to the class? Um, so that was, uh, let's see, so about four minutes for academic internet use. Uh, some of that may be an underestimate. So we, so the instructor had posted slides for the class lecture um, and so if you downloaded those slides, you, we would see that you downloaded them, but we wouldn't be able to tell thereafter, you know, how much you were referring to them or mm. if you were taking notes on them. And that was four minutes a day or four minutes an hour or, uh, or four, four minutes, minutes per uh, class session, which was 100 minutes. Okay. Wow. Not very much. Yeah. <laughs> Not very much. And then um, what was there anything else they were doing? So they were shopping online. I, I guess you weren't measuring because you were all you were measuring through a browser. So yeah. any other insights that that came up that you thought, oh, wow, this is pretty important. Yeah. Uh, so we had asked students to rate, you know, how much do you think that your Internet use is affecting your classroom learning? And so most people either said they didn't think it was affecting it or that it was slightly detrimental. Um, so for those students who said it was slightly detrimental, uh, they ended up using the Internet more. Mm. So it seemed like even though they knew that this was probably not a good idea, uh, they were still doing it anyway. So And um, underestimated, well, I guess, but they do recognize it's a little detrimental. Yeah, they, they recognize that it's a little, and it is a little detrimental. I mean, certainly, you know, we looked at different factors that affect test scores. Intelligence is, you know, the number one factor on how well you do on the test. Mm -hmm. And Internet use was like a, a small effect, but reliable. So, you know, if you're kind of 
struggling to do well in the class, you know, actually adding on Internet use is not going to help you any. Were you able to detect uh, texting and messaging and that? Was that part of their use of the Internet? Um, so we did look, you know, if they had, there's a lot of inter, in online browsers that have a chatting function, so we could look at that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people use their smartphones to text. Right, and so they just stay on the phone. look at that. Interesting. Wow. Holy cow. Because we, you know, we see it. We think it's this great advancement, and yet it's it's may not be. It may be a little more of a distraction. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Susan Ravisa. She is uh, talking about the research that uh, they're performing um, on internet connections and internet connectability in the classroom when it comes to universities and the impact it has on students, their ability to focus, their ability to stay on task. She's a professor of psychology at Michigan State University. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about the uh, impact that technology can have in a classroom at a university in uh, distracting. I mean, it, it could be a great resource if all of a sudden the teacher's talking about something and you could immediately search the Internet and find information on it and you know even bring that into discussion. How powerful could that be? But uh, it also ends up just flat-out distracting us. And our, our guest today is Dr. Susan Ravisa who is uh, talking about some research she's done with one of her classes or with one of the classes about about a third of the time they were either watching videos, doing social media, shopping online. And I mean, that can't that's got to be distracting. Right, Susan? Oh, yeah. Um, I would think it's hard to pay attention to what's going on around you if you're, um, you know, engaged in these non-class related activities. And to, and know yourself too. I mean, I guess if you're one who's who has a harder time self regulating, who has a harder time not being as impulsive. I mean, yeah. maybe you ought to know yourself enough and say, okay, I can't do the internet thing. Yeah, and I think it goes for more than just in a classroom setting. I'm often in meetings where other professors are using their devices, and they're obviously asked a question and kind of miss like the whole discussion before it. So this is pervasive in many settings. What and is it? I mean, because you—that was just the study on internet connection and, and access to a browser. What other things are you finding out just about using a laptop? And I mean, is it a better way to take notes? Is it is that technology a better? I mean, it seems like man, you could have. I, I've been using um, PowerPoint slides to take a lot of notes on, and I love it because it helps me kind of quickly, you know, organize my thinking. Except, is it does it have the same effect? Do I retain as much? Well, other studies have shown that, no, it's better actually to handwrite notes. Um, you end up processing that information more deeply and remembering it better um, than, you know, using a laptop. So um, it might feel like you are getting some benefit from that, but studies have shown that it's actually better to handwrite and paraphrase things. So, you know, sometimes when you're on the laptop, I think if you're a good typist, you can maybe just type verbatim what someone is saying. Mm. 
um, but writing is a little bit more effortful. And so you end up having to paraphrase um, or think about what are the critical points that the instructor has just said and get those down. Um, so for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like the laptop is a great way to take notes. What advice do you give teachers who want to, you know, keep, you know, more attention, more focus? How, what do you advise your fellow, you know, teachers to do? Um, so for like a lecture-based class, like a lot of college classes are for good or for worse, um, I suggest that um, students who bring a laptop to class sit in the back. Uh, first of all, you know, other studies have shown that people sitting around a person using the laptop also get distracted. So, you know, I was actually just in a talk the other day, and someone had their laptop screen open in front of me, and I started looking at what he was doing instead of listening to the talk. So I asked him to shut it, shut the laptop down, which he did. Hmm. Um, and so I asked, you know, students, they can bring a laptop if they want, but, you know, to sit in the back of the classroom. Um, and then for my class, uh, which uh, is, again, le- lecture-based, um, you know, students in – before I had done this research, I would post the lecture slides before class so they could follow along um, as I was going through the slides. Um, and now what I do is I wait until the review session to post the slides for the class. Mm. So they still get the information, they just don't get it before class. So then they really have no reason to bring their laptop to class. That's great. And because um, we've had other lecturers on that talk about the power of, you know, being able to use the multimedia tools to help. Mm-hmm. But yes. but then, I mean, if you've got if I show a video and then I immediately have everyone in the room looking for it right. on YouTube, then you, you kind of lose the power. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question, um, and I don't know if it's been addressed. Like, what are the costs and benefits? So, you know, maybe a benefit of learning a software programming class with your laptop, um, does that outweigh the cost of maybe getting distracted by Internet browsing or something else you're doing on the laptop? Hmm. Uh, so that would, I think, be a cool avenue of uh, future research to look at, you know, even when there is a benefit to the class, is it offset by, say, a cost for bringing the laptop? Well, and, and and I also noticed that not every not every lecturer is adept and skilled at using technology, and yeah. yet, and so, I mean, really, I just think about what I went through going to get my degrees and how little of this we had, how how really magnificent it could be. But mm-hmm. I also know I'm, it would be a major, major distraction. Um, yeah. What advice do you give parents as they're sending their kids to school? Yeah, so interestingly, my son's school had suggested that they could bring their um, you know, iPads and things like that to school, which I was sort of surprised about. Mm. Um, so, but I you know, told him not to look at that during class. and uh, So I would suggest that parents, uh, you know, don't let their, or I guess they need to sometimes bring a phone, a smartphone to school for emergencies and things like that, but just educating them as to, you know, this is, you know, going to have an effect on your ability to learn in class. Yeah. And boy, wouldn't it be powerful if, if we could get our kids on a proxy server and as parents, we could watch what they're doing. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I asked my son, um, this was in when he was eighth grade, you know, what people were doing, and he said people were playing games in, you know, the eighth grade class, and the teacher wasn't noticing, and so um, I definitely think, you know, even, so your self-regulation abilities mature, you know, they don't even get mature until maybe you're 18 or 19 mm-hmm. years old. Um, so it's going to be even harder for, like, a middle schooler to regulate their um browsing and browsing use and playing games and things like that. Especially because it seems like with the younger, like the junior highs and the high schools, we we prohibit so much of it mm-hmm. that they've never really learned how to use it effectively. And then we send them yeah. to college where they're free to do whatever they want, kind of, <laughs> right. and they don't have the skills. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I think that's a lot, I mean, just not in technology, but I think, you know, it's eating behaviors. Yeah, um, true. Anything like Sleeping, that. yeah. Partying yeah, behaviors, yeah. yeah. That's right. Oh, boy. Uh, so, you know, it's, I guess, important to uh, teach kids, you know, to do this young and to um, show them how to be responsible. <laughs> it's parenting 101, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where are you taking this next? What's your next uh, angle on the research? Yeah. Um, So I would like to uh, explore what I was just saying about, you know, about the costs and benefits of laptop use. Um, But also I would like to look at what other what other kinds of things people are are doing on their laptops. So we just looked at Internet browsing, but um, we didn't track things like word processing programs. uh, And so that might be more important uh, for tracking, you know, if people are taking notes on in word processing programs or even on the PowerPoint slides. So actually getting a more detailed... Yeah, um, of what know, they're doing on their idea, computer. Yeah, right. Because there could be maybe some hidden benefit there that we didn't pick up on. Um, certainly the Internet browsing seemed to have a negative relationship, but maybe there's you know some benefit of bringing the laptop to class in other ways that we didn't track. Well, and if a third of the time they're looking up, let's say, Spanish words for their Spanish class, there's probably a really good chance that they are also on their word processor writing the assignment. <laughs> For the other third of the time, right? So, I mean, it's. I guess this could. This. This could. There's a lot of data. Data that you could still glean from looking more deeply on their site, on their uh, computers. That's right. And you know, are they multitasking, like taking notes and checking their email or shopping? You know, or are they alternating between those things? Mm. Good stuff, uh, Susan. Thank you so much. I mean, I remember when it was just as simple as just sleeping during class, but now there's so much more to do. Now I can home shop or shop online. How fun is that? Interesting insights. Uh, Again, the reason we love uh, doing the show, learning so much. Now you know what to talk to your kids about. Hey, so are you surfing during class? Come on, Timmy. We got to be learning. Well, we appreciate uh, Dr. Susan Ravisa and her um, great work there. And let's all check ourselves, right? When you take your computer to your laptop to a meeting, what are you doing? When you take your cell phone to church, what are you actually looking at? Are you just doing a little Facebook? Stick with us, folks, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Last year, we uh, started having our producer, Leanna Tan, do some radio segments regularly to give us some of her little tidbits or insights and opinions. And uh, now that it's March 1st, it's one year to date. So we are celebrating 
the great anniversary of Leanna Tan and her tangents. Here's our celebration. Today is a special day for me. Today marks my one-year anniversary with Little Tangents. One year ago today, I began this journey with this radio show. And to celebrate this grand occasion, I feel it's only fit to give a speech. We've come a long way together. I'd say our first encounter was like a blind date. (laughs) We were set up by my boss. I think he saw a lot of potential for the two of us. But when we first met, I was speechless. I had no idea what to say. We knew nothing about each other. I mean, it took me a couple of weeks to even get this show's name figured out. (laughs) Talk about a rough start, right? I wouldn't say our relationship was necessarily love at first sight. But I did see potential in this show from that first moment. I honestly wanted us to work out, and so I just decided to see how things went with us. Trust me, we've had those late nights where little tangents would come to me with lots of problems, and I'd stay up really late on that editing software trying to fix them all. We've definitely had our bumps in the road and had to really work at ourselves and becoming one, but... I look back at those first days when we seemed so unfamiliar with one another to today and I see how our relationship has really bloomed. We've been places. I'm here at BYU's Miller Park for my first college baseball game. Tried new things. Okay, I got my first authentic college baseball hot dog and a churro. That is good. Hot dog also delicious. Okay, now how do I do this? So you grab the Pokeball, okay. and then you flick away. it like a basketball game. Like The harder you flick, the further it goes. Oh, I hit it! I got my first Pokemon! And learned a lot together. A complete orbit of the Earth around the sun actually takes about 365 and a quarter days to complete. So that extra quarter of a day adds up every four years into one extra day in what is called Leap Day. George W. Bush was a cheerleader in high school. An article from the Harvard University Gazette says, Every time you flush, aerosolized particles from the toilet float as far as six feet away. Now that is just revolting. You could be brushing your teeth with toilet water. We've met some amazing people along the way. Hi everyone, I'm from Germany. My name is Sabrina Zink. <laughs> I love America. My name is Nora Corridon and I am living in Chile, County Kerry, Ireland. Where are you from? France. I'm from Korea. Yeah, South Korea. I'm from Ecuador. Through this relationship, I've really learned to open up and share my feelings. Sometimes I wish I were tall. When people pop their gum inside their mouth. I hate that voice. It bugs me when people fake cry. Slow typers. This just, this bothers me. Here are five of my very own irrational fears. Spiders, skeletons, garlic, my roommate's bed, yellow lights. Little Dungeon says see me at my best. It is the day that I reached my goal. You win. And my worst. Sweet home Alabama. Lord, I'm coming home to you and has still stayed with me through it all. Now it's like we've become a part of each other. I guess you could say we're inseparable. It's been a lovely first year with you, Little Tangents. 
Here's to 64 episodes and many more to come. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And this is the show where we give you all the information, the tools you need to make it through this crazy thing called life. Because you are a beautiful person, you can make it happen. I'm complimenting you. Crazy little thing called life. <laughs> Thank you, Elvis. Elvis will be in the building all day. Actually, he didn't sing that song. It oh, was Freddie sang? Mercury, but who can oh. do Freddie Mercury? Did he? Yeah, but you did You did Freddie Mercury as Elvis. And you're wearing those bell bottoms. So, Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> it's World Compliment Day. This is the day you're going to want to lean over to that uh, your fellow cube uh, partner and say, hey, you in the cube, nice, for example, nice cup with the Disney princess on. Thank you. You're welcome. See, <sighs> never ends. Was that a compliment that was, uh, were you fishing for a compliment of your own? Because you do have your own thermos I have a, with your name on we it. We don't call it a thermos. We call it a hydro flask. Well, it has a little little uh, flip that comes flip up sip. and you can sip out of. Yeah. So isn't that a thermos? A hydro flask? It's a hydro flask. Okay. It's a lovely thermos flask. <laughs> yeah, I just brought my thermos with my soup in it. By the way, if you put soup in my thermos, it li- it's as hot as lava for a week. Lava hot. My cup will only keep things cold, as we discussed last hour, because uh, it's a Disney Princess frozen cup. So it keeps things cold. But the neat thing about yours that my Hydro Flask does not have, um, it does not entertain children. Mm. Except, by the way, my grandchild loves my thermos. Your Hydro Flask. My Hydro Flask. Because it always has ice in it, and she she likes ice. Mm. Who doesn't like ice? Ice is nice. Thank you. It's also Pig Day, by the way. It's the holiday that was first established in 1972 by a pair of sisters, one from Texas, one from North Carolina. The siblings recognized the importance of the swine in every day being fine. And though the noble animal deserved a day to accord the pig its rightful, though generally unrecognized place as one of man's most intellectual and domesticated animals. It likes – today's the day you celebrate the pig. Speaking of pigs, what are you eating? <laughs> it's also Peanut Butter Lover's Day and I'm loving these Peanut Butter Reese's Pieces that did you buy? Did you buy? Student, did you buy Peanut Butter Reese's Pieces and bring them to us to share? Some student did. You're welcome to as many as you want. There's a huge bag here that they just left. Isn't there, That's great. Isn't there an honor code situation? There's an honor code. Okay. But he's being honorable in that he's sharing. He has given him two hours of warning and then That's right. just said, forget well, we about talked it for about this hour. a few days ago. Yeah. I think he's uh, he's given him three days' notice. You have to also put it in the school paper. Just gave some to Matt. Terry, mm. do you want any? No, thanks. He's good. Where's, he's why? not a peanut butter lover. I have certain values that I try to hold to in my life. One of those is... It's Peanut Butter Lover's Day. I love it. Do you love peanut butter? Oh, it's great. Peanut butter is one of my three favorite food groups. So this is killing you right now then. It's a food group. Could be. (laughs) 
I didn't know it was a we, food we go food. through quite a bit of peanut butter in my house. I do too. We do too. I love peanut butter. Yeah. I eat it every morning. I put it on pasta. Oh, yeah. it's everywhere. I put it oh, in no. pieces. Peanut butter on pasta is good. No. No, seriously. No, I was joking. No, it's a it's an ingredient. That's disgusting. No, it's actually really good. It's, it's an ingredient for who? I'll I'll get you the recipe. Okay. That sounds good. It's like a peanut flavored mm. pasta. It's really good. It's best in pieces. I don't eat any pieces without peanut butter. <laughs> There's no other pieces to eat. Hey, we, um, we're going to be talking leadership in just a few minutes. Nine types of leadership, none of which has ever been, you know, demonstrated by us for some reason. None of the nine. Weird. So we'll get into all the fun of leadership, plus, of course, visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And doing hero stories, plus some more empty news. Matt Townsend News. By the way, um, if tomorrow is Fruit Lover's Day, we can enjoy these Skittles that have also been left here. Ooh. There's even more of those. Excellent. Thank you for leaving us some candy and some food. Uh, First, let's get to the headlines, though, Terry. What's going on other than the celebration of Trump's speech last night? Right. What else, what, what's going on that we need to worry about? When presidents address joint sessions of Congress, they generally are careful... To not stretch the truth, says Glenn Kessler and Michelle Yee Leahy at the Washington Post. They do the fact-checking for the Washington Post. It says, but despite the high-profile stage, President Trump's maiden address to Congress was notable because it was filled with numerous inaccuracies, including several that he trots out on a regular, almost daily basis. There are a handful of four Pinocchio whoppers sprinkled in among the 13 notable claims. A widely cited example is Trump's technically accurate but practically absurd claim that 94 million Americans are out of the labor force. He made that claim yesterday. 94 million Americans. Well, yeah. Some 75% of those 94 million are over the age of 15 without a job. So we're talking like high school kids. Wrong. Well, they're still unemployed. They're students, stay-at-home parents, disabled people, and retirees who aren't looking for work. But he counts them in his number so he can have a big but number to talk many about. many aren't looking for work because they're depressed. They're sad. They're down. No, they can't just, get the job they want. They're just not looking for work. It's not Wrong. Like, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts the number of unemployed at about 7.6 million in January. People looking for work in the labor force. Alternative mm-hmm. facts. Now, that number might be a little sketchy, but it's closer right, than 94 million people. Alternative facts. He also overstated the amount of money spent on wars in the Middle East. <laughs> Just kind of lumping things together. President Trump's new national security advisor, advisor Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, argued that the president should not use the phrase radical Islamic terrorism or radical Islam in his address to Congress Tuesday night, but was overruled. Trump's chief speechwriter, Stephen Miller, left the phrase in political rights. A senior official told The Sun in Europe that Trump really wants to come to England this year, but he wants to, the heat to die down first a bit, adding that Trump watches uh, what happens in the U.K. surprisingly closely, and they don't want to create a scene. And so his his uh, visit, which was supposed to be here in the next few months to the U.K., is being postponed till October. Just to let everything settle down a little bit. 
<laughs> you know, the protests from Parliament and all that. Right, right, all that stuff. Eleven members of the Gulf Shore High School marching band were injured when a car plowed through a group of uh, a Mardi Gras parade in Alabama on Tuesday. Three of the band members were in critical condition, according to city mm. officials. A teenage band had just started a march down the parade route when they were struck from behind. The vehicle was part of the parade. A spokesperson for the city said, according to reports, the vehicle was part of the parade and the driver was an elderly man. They're investigating. Mm. Uh, only about half the DNA in the chicken used at Subway sandwiches actually comes from chicken, Uh-oh. at least according to one analysis. A DNA researcher says the number obviously should be 100%. Uh, Canadian Broadcasting did a DNA analysis of chicken from various fast food chains in Canada, found that most contain close to 100% chicken, except for Subway. Subway's oven-roasted chicken contained 53.6% chicken. Its chicken strips had only 42.8% chicken. The rest of of it was soy. Yeah, so soy. Soy? So there's a food type product involved. It's not like sawdust or something. Researchers were so so shocked. Researchers were so shocked they tested the Subway chicken twice. In a statement, Subway Canada disagrees with the results and claims this chicken is 100% white meat with 1% or less soy. So I don't know how you can be 100% and then 1% or less, but it says it's going to check into its suppliers and see what they're doing. That is... That's some news I'm sure they didn't want out. No. I'm still hungry, though. Yeah. Doesn't deter more, me. Have some more Reese's Pieces. <laughs> I found a useless, in my mind, study. Hold on. A useless. No use. studies are useless. This is useless. Okay. And that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. This one says that moms with kids are more sleep deprived than moms without kids. Hold it. <laughs> but that's not, that's right. Yeah, but they confirmed what. You probably already know. Well, I know, but now we know. But we knew before. Wait, now, mom, it's not a, now it's not a made-up fact. It's a... Moms with kids... More sleep deprived. Get less sleep yeah. than moms without kids. Well, they're not moms, but women without kids. Yeah. Yeah. So it says women with young children at home say they were, four, they were tired 14 days a month compared to 11 days for those without children at home. Among the nearly 3,000 women who were 45 or younger in the study, the only factor linking with insufficient sleep was having kids in the house. And it says, for each child in the house, increases the odds of insufficient sleep by 50%. Wow. I have four kids in the house. And the kicker, for men, we basically did the same analysis, and children had absolutely no impact on their sleep. Yeah. You know what, though, (laughs) Terry? Men are pathetic. You could appreciate this stat. Interestingly enough, if you have a newborn and you have to get up in the middle of the night several times to feed them, you are actually less tired than all those other women. Okay. Bet you didn't know that. I did not know that. And even more so when I never got out of bed. So you can tell your wife this. If she uh, says that she's too tired, just say, well, no, according to these facts, you know, you should be less tired. Well, the Alternative be- facts. The best part was she was on maternity and she's like, I'm tired. And I go, but you really have nothing to do, right? You're just going to take care of the kids. So yeah, that really wasn't the best approach in that no. situation. Just a word uh, for the wise. Just don't. One time I, I told my wife, look, I don't know why it takes you to get the kids ready for church and it takes you so long to do that. Oh. I can be ready yeah. in just like 30 minutes. I have myself dressed. I'm ready to go. What's your problem? I just don't use the word tired in my house. It's kind of like a four-letter word. Yeah. Well, especially, yeah, your wife's pregnant. Yeah. You don't know tired. You've never had a baby on your inside mm. sucking life out of you. It is – as the guy in the Oklahoma legislature 
or Nebraska, one of those states. One of those states. Where he tried to pass a law talking about the women being hosts. When you have a baby. They call him a host? It was something to do with an, an abortion bill of some kind. But he was saying the woman is a host. And so she has taken that relationship on herself. So she is kind of given. She doesn't have control of her body now. Is kind of his argument. They are a host, which leads the, the child to be the parasite. And it's <laughs> <laughs> just a bad argument. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We That's have harsh. several We have several women hosts here at BYU Radio. I think, I think we're talking a different host. Host in, in the yeah. sense of. Oh, being, I see. You know, it's great. Are we the parasites then? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. yeah. In fact, they even call us that. Did you, they got, did you get the memo about no. the parasites? I'm not on many email chains around yeah. here. Well, I'll hook you up. I'll get you in there. Because, um, yeah, they're calling us parasites now. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, and they're very accurate. If it fits. <laughs> if it fits. Are you quoting the OJ movie? Yeah. Then you must acquit. Yeah, basically. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Um Man stopped at a red light, uses a slingshot to take out the traffic cameras. How do they know that they did that? Well, they watch the camera. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) A driver stopped at a traffic light in China, was recorded leaning out of the window of his van and using a slingshot to take out the traffic camera. The CCTV camera's uh, footage shows the man identified by his surname, Lee, Hmm. stopped at the Shanghai red light in his blue minivan. I thought you were going to say it was David. David Lee? No. Ross, David Lee, no. With a slingshot? Come on. Oh, David. David, the David. Now, was it a slingshot or did it have like the wrist brace on it, it like so a it becomes wrist a wrist rocket. rocket at that point? Those details are missing. Okay. I think oh. it had a crosshairs on it too. Oh, nice. <laughs> Laser you guys sights. are such geeks when it comes to slingshottery. I you mean, know. a slingshot's like a piece of wood, put a... Yeah, it could be anything, really. Yeah, but if you have, like, carbon fiber. Yeah, then then it's some serious slingshotting. Yeah. Lee can be seen reaching a slingshot out of the van's window and using it to shatter the camera lens. Mm. That's a great shot, by the way. Oh, yeah. And he has a skill. He's got a serious skill. And uh, the arrest now, he was then arrested. He told officers he lost his temper because he had been waiting a long time for the light to change. Mm. Apparently, he was aiming for the light, not the camera. Hmm. And he's just so he really doesn't have that great of a shot. So I, I notice a trend here. All of the stories involve people that we should be complimenting today. That's true. This guy is a great shot. He is a great shot. He's also a criminal, but a great shot. It can't be denied. <laughs> yeah, you know it can't be. It can't be denied. Uh, even though maybe you know, maybe he needs to find another way to deal with his anger. Maybe not get in the car when you're angry. That's a great point. Thank you. You know, that's what I love about you, Jeffrey Simpson. You always come up with great points. And I mean that. I really do. I mean, Terry's gone now. Unlike Terry, you're always so positive and come up with great points. Thank you. That's Because Terry's gone, that's why I felt safe to cry for a minute there <laughs> you understand we're on the radio so it's not just between us yeah but terry's gone okay that's a good point he never listens to the show he just produces it we'll take a break my friends when we come back we're going to be talking about nine types of leadership what kind of leader are you mastering the art of people in the 21st century workplace stick with us folks this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world 
Have you ever had a boss who just leaves everyone on edge of their seat or when they, you know, when they come walking through the office, you're always looking over your shoulder, wondering what's going to happen or a coworker that you just couldn't stand? Everyone has different personalities, which means everyone is going to have a different style of leadership, a different approach to how they work with each other. These differences can be frustrating at times, even hinder your productivity. But licensed psychotherapist and business consultant Dr. Beatrice uh, Chestnut says that understanding these different types of leadership uh, and different styles can help solve some of the problems that you might be facing at work and in life. She joins us today from San Francisco to discuss her book, The Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace. Dr. Beatrice Chestnut, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is um, leadership I love as a topic, and bringing it into our world and our, our everyday lives, I guess that's that's really what discerns if you're a real leader or not, is if you can, I guess, if you can evaluate your style and make the appropriate changes. Exactly, exactly. It's It's really about self-awareness and being able to understand and leverage your strengths but also be able to understand your challenges and your blind spots and be able to make course corrections and take in feedback in order to improve your performance as well as how you relate to other people. In your book, you I guess you've been consulting, you've been doing this, you've been a counselor as well. You, you know people and you've taken, I guess, leadership. Uh, are they archetypes? Are they uh, leadership? Um, what do you call them? Leadership types. Yeah, I would say they're they're archetypes, and they're also styles of uh, relating and acting in the world. Um, and it's based on a model that describes nine uh, nine nine of these styles or archetypes in very great detail in terms of patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. Do people usually just take on one type, or do they end up kind of making a mix or a merge of three or four types? Well, it, interestingly, it's it's kind of both. Um, we definitely have a main type or a core type, but the nice thing about this model is it maps the complexity of the human personality quite well in that it shows us both how we tend to come from one style mainly, but we also um, have elements of other styles. There are interconnections that we have with other styles, so, uh, so it's a little bit of both. That's great. That's great. Let's get into some of these uh, some of these leadership types. What's the What's the best way to begin? Where do you start when you start teaching these nine types? That's a great question. So where I where I usually start is I think three is three 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 categories is easier to explain than nine right yeah. off the bat. So. Yeah. Um, it starts with the idea that, and it's kind of an idea from Eastern uh, wisdom traditions, that we, we don't just have one brain, we actually have three brains. Um, so we have a brain, of course, in our head that thinks and is sort of cognitive and mental and analyzes things. But we also have a brain in our heart. Our heart it kind of functions as a way of uh, processing information relating to the world. Um, and so that that speaks the language more of relationship and feelings and empathy. And then we also have a, a brain in our body of sorts, um, a kind of gut knowing or kinesthetic intelligence. Um, and so, and, and neurobiology and advances in, in studying the actual brain are actually bearing these out in the same kinds of ways. Um, so it's, it's sort of patterned in our biology, but also in these types that there, and so there are three types that kind of live in or come more from the mental space, our head, 
Um, there's three types that come more from the heart space or more sort of emotionally based and focus on relationships. And then there are three types that come more from the body or this kind of physical intelligence that's more about behavior and movement and instinctive intelligence. That's uh, it, it's so it's so holistic, really. It's so healthy. Uh, that's how I kind of break things down. I add a spiritual uh, element to it too. Where do you see spiritual would fit? Maybe emotional. Well, well actually, spiritual permeates the whole thing. Mm. The nice thing about this model is you can talk about it either uh, in terms of psychology or in terms of spirituality or or neither or both hmm. at the same time. And in business, of course, you know, I usually don't bring in the spirituality, but it is there if you're interested in that aspect of it. That's, I think it's fantastic. And you can drop it in throughout uh, our discussion. Talk about the head section. So if we get into the heads and the mental kind of area of, um, of our leadership skills, what, what are the three categories underneath that area? So um, the three leadership styles that are based in the head are, are kind of based on a kind of a primary coping strategy that's designed to deal with uh, safety and security. So there's one kind of uh, leadership style, I call it, you know, it's the type five leadership style that sort of, that focuses a lot on knowledge and information. And there's a sense of finding safety and grounding in the world through knowing through mastering the data, through understanding the information, uh, whatever information is pertinent to the job that you're doing. And this, this style of person tends to be very intellectual, very good at objective analysis, very good at kind of taking the emotion out of things and looking at uh, how are the component parts fitting together and what information and data do we need to master in order to do a good job. Hmm. We can all, I think we can all think of somebody like that. Um, and it's because what's neat about this is I can identify with part of it. And then I, so I can hold that as one of mine. Um, and as you explain the others, I guess, is that how we go about finding our leadership type? Or do we do assessments? Do we how do you get to the knowledge? Um, I think the the best way is, like you're saying, to kind of really do an in-depth study of these and see which one fits what I know to be true about myself. Now, the tricky thing is uh, this map is one of the great things about it. It is also highlights blind spots. Mm. So that can be that can make finding your type a little bit tricky because you can think, well, I don't really do that. Uh, but maybe you do. You're just not always aware of it. So there are assessments out there. It, it's hard to make a really good assessment of this model because it's so complex and yeah. because it involves blind spots. And it kind of depends on how self-aware you are to find yourself. So I think the best way is to really study the different styles and kind of find what matches yours. And like you're saying, you often will relate to more than one, um, but usually it's it's which is the one do I relate to the most oh, you know, yeah. that describes the most of me. Well, and then those around you might be like, oh, yeah, Matt, no, you're not that one. Right? They, they might <laughs> exactly. give you other That's feedback. That- <laughs> that can be very helpful is to kind of find which one you relate to, but then ask people who know you really well, what do they think? Yeah. What, okay, so yeah. underneath heads or the mental, we have kind of the safety, security, the knowledge, information. What, what, other, what other categories or other types of leadership? 
or underneath right. that. Well, well, in the head, there are three styles. One is about this one that I described with knowledge. Another one is about a lot, focuses a lot on assessing threats and solving problems before they occur. And then the third style that's based in the head um, is focused a lot on imagining positive future outcomes and looking at the bright side and keeping the mood up as a way of finding safety in terms of being having no limits to kind of their ability to be creative and innovative. Hmm. And then the heart styles, um, based based in the heart, that kind of uh, are are sort of more emotionally focused. They also they also have a center they have a central concern on on image and on how people view them. Uh, so they're very sensitive to um, relationships and how how they're being experienced by the people around them. So one of these styles focuses a lot on being liked and on creating positive rapport and alignment with other people. Um, that's style two. Style three um, focuses a lot on having an image of being successful. Um, and so achievement, goals, uh, tasks, um, getting results, uh, that's uh, that's the sort of central focus of style three, which is often called the performer. Um, and by the way, American culture is has a style three personality. Mm. Um, and so this is someone who is, even though they're based in the heart, is good at turning down the level, the volume on emotions, so that they can get things done. And then the third style in the heart um, is is oriented to having an image of being unique or special. And they're very, they're a lot about self-expression and, and being perceived as creative and, and sort of uniquely who they are. Wow. And so, um, and I, that's really interesting because you might just naturally go more to the heart uh, area and kind of have two or three from the heart area, but you also could have a little mix from the three different areas, the body, the, the heart, and the head. Is that, is there an ideal mix? Well, um, the whole idea behind the Enneagram is that um, it, it is a model of wholeness, and the idea is the goal is balance. The goal is to come from all three and to be able to move back and forth as the situation calls for, you know, whatever is the best strategy in the moment. However, the theory is is that because we adopt a coping strategy early in life, one of these nine um, to kind of get along in the world, and then we become really, really good at that one style. Uh, we tend to overdo that style and kind of keep applying that same strategy over and over again. And what this model helps us do is to understand where, why, how we tend to kind of go on autopilot and sort of apply the same strategy over and over again. And by seeing that we're doing that, be able to more consciously adopt the styles of different types, depending on, you know, what's, what, what the best strategy is in, in the moment. Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, give us the three um, leadership types for the body. Sure. So the, the body-based types are oriented a bit toward um, sort of having a physical grounding in a sense of being and a sense of control in the world. And um, one of these types, type 8, is oriented a lot toward power. Um, who has the power? Are they going to exercise it in a way that's just and fair? Uh, but also having power and establishing a power base as a way of getting things done and controlling the environment. Um, type 9 um, is 
is more focused on creating harmony in their environment. So everyone getting along, avoiding conflict. Um, uh, they, they lead by consensus. There are leaders that like to hear from everyone and make sure everyone's included. Uh, and then type one is, uh, is oriented toward quality and improvement and making things as perfect as they can be. They automatically sort of see things in terms of how they measure up to kind of a standard of perfection that they hold inside themselves and are always striving to make things better. And so these are leaders who tend to be very focused on, on quality and, and self-improvement and on doing the work in the best possible way it can be done. Man, it's uh, it's so in-depth, and you can also see that just investing some time and energy in this, you, you would set yourself up to not only know yourself better, but to start to know the people around you better, if you could, if you could see them um, through some of these different types. Powerful stuff, folks. Let's take a break, come back, and continue the discussion with Beatrice Chestnut about her book, The, Ty- the Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you uh, be the good in the world. Shines in a different way. Are you tired of being frustrated at work? Uh, Maybe we have an answer for you here. It's the book, The Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace. And so whether you're the leader or you're just trying to deal and lead and manage and work with people, it's probably a, a really powerful tool to help you, I think, open up your mind and start to see people in more than just you know a binary way, more than just good, bad, right, wrong, boss, peer. Um, and joining us to talk about the book is Dr. Beatrice Chestnut. She um, uh, is a consultant, also has been a, a, psych- a licensed psychotherapist as well as a business consultant, and has been working with um, people. And, and, and Beatrice, this is such an in-depth really process that you're talking about to, to actually understand the different types of leadership, identify your own, and then be able to implement it with others, it's going to take time. Um, sure, yes, definitely. Um, it, it does take a little bit of study to get into the system. However, once you understand your type and start to learn about the others, it actually speeds things up in terms of right. uh, being able to work better with others. Because you're not dancing I mean, a lot of times I I call it smoke versus fire. We end up spending so much time arguing, discussing, frustrated by something that I call the smoke that we never get down to the real goal. And it sounds like when you break it into the nine types, each of these types has certain goals, certain objectives, certain things that they feel are critical to the discussion or to the situation. Right, exactly. And each of them has, you know, world, certain worldviews that they, certain lenses that they see the world through. And a lot of times people tend to think that everyone sees the world the way they do through right. the same lens. And usually a big insight people have when they learn the system is that, wow, not everyone sees the world the way I do. And no wonder we're having this conflict because we're coming at it from two completely different ways. Do do you ever get pushback from people? Because I hear it with Myers and Briggs and other or other kind of uh, you know if, tools and evaluations where where we f- people feel like they're being pegged and you're you're pegging me as a certain type of person. 
What, what's your, what would you say to somebody that doesn't want to be typed? Yes, that, that happens a lot, of course. And, of course, people don't want to be limited or told they're something uh, that they don't necessarily think they are. Um, what we, what we usually, the way it usually comes across is people will say, you're putting, in me, you're putting me in a box. Mm. Don't put me in a box. And what, what, what we usually say to that when we're teaching the system is, well, you're already in a box. You just don't know it. <laughs> you don't know the dimensions of the box you're in because you've been in it so long. It seems familiar and comfortable in some ways, but the, this model helps uh, sort of highlight the dimensions of the box that you're in. It helps you actually get out of it. Uh, by understanding how how your 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 thoughts and feelings and behaviors have certain patterns to them, yeah, and I love to think of it too that it also helps me get in the box with others where I can I mean I could be more efficient if what I know you need from me is a threat assessment on yeah. what we're talking about instead of exactly. me just trying to be liked by you. Exactly, exactly. If I'm trying to be liked, but you're, you keep questioning me and, and because you're trying to assess a threat, it helps me to know that that's where you're coming from. Yeah. Is, I guess when it comes to leadership, do you, do, you see, do you see these same traits in the leaders of our country, in the leaders of our companies and corporations? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's, I sometimes get asked, you know, does everyone really have a type? And, you know, I've never met anyone who didn't. And so I do see these leadership styles at work and, uh, you know, in businesses and in, in le- the leadership of our country. Of course, it's, it's a tricky business to try to type someone else because you don't really know what their inner experience is. But, um, but I do see these types everywhere I look. And what's so funny about it is somebody could be the CEO of a company, but you still need to move people. And if you don't understand, you know, this kind of this minutia level of um, information and understanding about people, it's just going to be harder to move them. That's right. That's right. As a leader, you need to mobilize people and you need to, you know, persuade them and motivate them. And, and it really helps to understand them at a deeper level if you're going to do that successfully. Does Do, do you notice um, that, I guess, do we use this or could we use this system to manipulate, to 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 actually do harm? Yes, I, I think this is a very powerful system, and any any system that has that, that is powerful can be used for good or not. And so, I definitely think I have a section in my book called uh, that, that's about the ethics of using this system. Um, and so, I think it's really important to use it carefully and use it wisely, and not use it to stereotype people or limit people in any way. Yeah, and I mean, I guess too, you could eventually even use it to hire people. Exactly. And that's really a wrong use of it because yeah. it's kind of the wrong thing that only this type of person can do this kind of job. You know, any any type of person can do that kind of job, especially if they're working to be more self-aware. And that's really the most important piece is there, there is this, this, this element of the different types, but then there's also a vertical dimension of how, how hard are you working to be more self-aware? How much have you understood yourself? And that's really those, the people who are really working to be more emotionally intelligent based on understanding this kind of thing are really going to be the people that are most effective. That's great. Now, short of just getting the book, which they can, I guess, get anywhere, but what, what, what's one thing that you would suggest we all could do today 
that if we did this one thing would start to help us better understand ourselves and the and the leadership types of others well i think I think the whole thing is really based on the idea of self observation so I think today, if you made a conscious effort to really pay a lot of people think they already know what they do and how they operate, but when they really study when they really try to be more mindful and say, like, what am I doing and why am I doing it that way and what's motivating me and what are, what are the effects of what I'm doing? Oftentimes they're very surprised by what they find out. Or if you say, why do you do this? They'll often say, I don't know. So I would say to be, to take an extra conscious effort to be really self-aware today and observe yourself very carefully and try to study what you're doing and why. I think that's the, the core of it. Yeah, start learning about yourself. Uh, powerful stuff. Dr. Beatrice Chestnut, thank you so much for your insight and your time. Again, the book is The Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace. Good stuff. We will take a break and come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show in just the top of the hour, about 15 minutes from now. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation today. I believe it's uh, Jerem and Jason. Hello, gentlemen. With it. Good morning. With it. Right. I saw you guys walking down to your fortress. It is our fortress of solitude. Your, <laughs> your fortress of solitude. And I thought to myself, hey, there are two incredibly good-looking humans. Well, thank you. That's very nice to hear. Are you, you sure bet. it was us? Yeah, it was you too. Oh, and by the way, happy World Compliment Day. Oh, oh, I what? get it. You get so what? Is it about forced, just giving hey, compliments, forced. or you have to compliment the world? No, no, no. It's it's giving everybody in the world, the world a compliment. Is so round. <laughs> I enjoy it. Round Man, world. A... <laughs> you are so nice. So beautiful. No, you guys. I'm giving you an honest, earnest compliment. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Well, it happens to fall on this day, so it just happened. Yeah. Forced. It just happened to fall today. But it's, we'll take it. It's by the way. It's also Pig Day. Pig day. Mm-hmm. Where do you go to find all of the days? You go. You look up just, just Google. Just Google days. Yeah, it's right there. Is there is there a day that isn't a day? Days. No. D A Z. Is yeah. everything D-A-Y-Z. every day a day? Yeah, every day is a day. Love that. And you is know what? Tomorrow's tomorrow's another day. <laughs> Have you ever heard that one? Tomorrow is another uh, day. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's not today. Okay. Or yesterday. My head is spinning. I'm sorry. I'll slow down, you guys. <laughs> I'll slow down. Hey, you're still going to do the show, though, right, today? Right? We're debating it. We're leaning towards yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so if you were to do the show, like, because yes. you're not sure yet, what would you probably, what would you want to talk about on your show? How about, how about BYU men's and women's hoops heading to Vegas for the West Coast Conference Tournament? Mmm. Me gusta. And of course, BYU Sports Nation. We'll be down there starting tomorrow. Wow. You guys, get, you guys get to travel, huh? That's good. Yeah, that's great. a violation of basketball, but we're excited. That, <laughs> I mean, that's great for you. Yeah, I mean, it we, is great for us. We're very excited. Well, uh, Spencer's sick today, and I've still got a voice issue, so we just got to amp. We just got to amp it up. Just got to power through it. I have a feeling Jason's going to have to carry this load. I'm just saying, maybe he has been for a long time. Maybe, maybe, maybe you should just bring me to Vegas. 
That way I'm there in case, you know. Yeah. I just heard. You guys get sick. I heard. If you're in the trunk and Jaren you don't just, know it, <laughs> hey. I mean, why anyway. would they not take a replacement? I mean, you always take you always take a backup. I'm just yeah. saying. I'm, I'm kind of the backup there. Well, then you take a, you, you take a another backup to the backup. A backup to the backup. I mean, Where's the generator? That's like the assistant the to the assistant. Pin? Yeah, the number three. <laughs> this is really good news, though. So you're you're leaving, and then you're going to talk about the tourney, the tournament, and who is the key to success for BYU. That is our uh, hmm. it's our discussion today. Yeah. Is it Eric Mika? He's like the main dude, or is it somebody else? That's that's the question, right? So yeah, will it will weigh in? Fans will weigh in. Use the hashtag BYUSN. President Coach Steve Cleveland will join us as well, former BYU head coach. He's yeah. one of our analysts. He'll be he's down in Vegas right now. He's ahead of the curve, man. He's down there getting ready. He's probably yeah. Teams he's practice. probably sitting at the pool. He's prepping. Yeah, his yeah his preparation level is really high. But yeah, right. He's probably at the pool. I mean, and, he, uh, and Matt, are you a fan of uh, of the foosball? Oh, and by yeah. that I mean football. Oh, the, the the foosball game. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because because today is day two of uh, BYU spring uh, football practice. Oh, me gusta too. That's yeah. good. That's we'll go live to practice. You're actually going to talk Somebody. about practice. That's good. We we'll talking about practice. I mean, that'll be great. Alan anyway. Iverson will join us from practice to talk about practice. <laughs> he will not. That would be awesome. Alan Iverson, you bring is he is he at BYU now? Um, I'm going to say no. I think no. he's a grad assistant. Okay. Alan Iverson. Online was, classes. Alan Iverson was a quarterback in high school. Oh, really? And he was the player of the year in Virginia. Wow. In football. Did yeah. you Did you guys see the 30 for 30 on him? No. Is that where you got that information? Because no. that was in that. But that no. that was a really – they're all all the 30 for 30s are good. But the I'm one in, on Alan was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I'm intrigued by him. I have a hard time sometimes getting through the 30. And then you're like 430? You're yeah. like times 30? Holy shnikes. It's a lot of 30s. It's a lot of time, you guys. Okay, well, that's a good show. So let me get this straight. Steve Cleveland, Alan Iverson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All from Vegas. So, someone right now is like, Alan Iverson's going to be on the show? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get a okay. guy named I- Alan Iverson. We're, we're going to get, when the show is over, we're going to get an angry tweet. Hey, I tuned in because you said Alan Iverson what was going to be there. What a crock. Alan Iverson wasn't even on the show. <laughs> Where are, are you, you guys on the AM dial? <laughs> yeah, I can't find you on the dial, Where boys. Where are you? Well, guys, I um, I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. We appreciate that. And, and we appreciate your amazing show. Three hours. But you know what? Every day. I know. We've, we, and we Except deliver it. And we deliver water all the way to the end of the row. We, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to let you go now. But yeah. I will keep pushing for the next six minutes so that when I'm done, you guys have a nice flow of liquid love. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. And seriously, you are the best there is. And that's a sincere compliment. From 10 to 11, we are. From, from 10 to 11, you are the best. <laughs> Killing it. See you, boys. Make it a good one. Have them have a good time and have a good time in Vegas. And Jason, go ahead. Feel free to come hang out with us, you know, with the people that don't get to go to Vegas. Actually, I was just in Vegas. I'm, I'm good. When was the last time you were in Vegas, Jeffrey? On purpose? Yeah, why, why do you say that? Um, we were there. You were in Reno a couple years ago because we uh, we went to one of those timeshare meetings. Oh, and yeah. you know they they have this funnel approach where if you don't buy any of the things that they want, they're going to offer you this free trip to Hawaii or Vegas. Yeah, that's what you were going. So we for. went to Vegas. They put us in this really dumpy hotel, and uh, yeah, it, we came out. I think. Paying money to them in the end, there was nothing free, oh. so it was a scam. Well, that's well, you've learned the lesson. Yeah, 
And the lesson is there's nothing free in this world. So, and we were actually criticized by one of the timeshare guys. And he's basically saying, do you want to spend all this money on a timeshare or do you want to move to Utah? That sounds like a weird goal. We're, we just shut off after that. We're like, we will not be listening to you anymore. Holy cow. That's a horrible sales technique. And the same thing happened at the, uh, the uh, car dealership when we were trying to negotiate a better deal. Really? Um, I told the guy that I was a BYU grad, and he's like, oh, no surprise. And then he went on to call me a cheapskate. <laughs> oh, brother. You know, there's cheapskates at every school. Yeah. I've got a pair uh, sitting in my you know closet that are gathering dust. But you do wear that T-shirt that says – Quit calling me a cheapskate. Yeah. Just because I don't want to pay you. You know, just because I didn't spend $50 on my roller skates, you know. <laughs> You're an expensive skate is what you are. Hey, uh, crazy story. A burglary suspect showered in a Texas home he broke into, and then he put on the victim's Betty Boop pajamas. Crazy. <laughs> a burglary suspect was arrested Sunday after Wichita Falls police Caught him fresh out of the shower in a stranger's home wearing Betty Boop pajama pants. It didn't even belong to him. I don't know a lot of guys that wear Betty Boop pajama pants. But if you saw a pair of nice, silky Betty Boop pajama bottoms, wouldn't you want to wear them and be comfortable? No, I would say, hey, my wife might want to wear those. I'm telling you, you haven't lived until you've tried that. And instead of bringing your, your thermos in tomorrow... Just grab, you know, your grandkids' uh, princess cup. No. And it tastes so much better. I think you're losing your mind. The victims arrived at the home about 5 p.m. They heard Brad Vaughn taking a shower. They saw signs that he had broken into the residence, and uh, they called 911. When police got there, they uh, found Vaughn in the bedroom with his clothes on the floor wearing only Betty Boot pajama pants that belonged to one of the victims. And then when they caught him, probably did he dripping s- wet, did he say boop boop beep doop boop like yeah. that? <laughs> and, then they, and then the police shot him. That's crazy. But I think saying boop boop be doop when the cops show up is akin to uh, saying, "Did I do that?" You know, as Steve Urkel on yeah. Family Matters. Yeah, by the way, both are annoying, right? Which is interesting because Carl on Family Matters was a cop. See, it all comes full circle. You know what? Only in your head, Jeffrey. <laughs> Only in your head, because I don't. I didn't watch any of those shows. I don't. Think. Well, my head is a full circle. Oh, is it? Anywho, hey, as wait you a minute. There we go. <laughs> Gone. By the way, would you ever wear Betty Boot pajamas again? If this guy had tried them on after he showered, I would Well, just... not if they had blood on them. Yeah. Uh, hero story. We always like to end the show with a hero story. A helmet camera captured the moment three men pulled a teenage girl from a freezing cold lake. Officials in Waterboro say she fell off a snowmobile into the water on February 4th. A day of ice fishing on uh, Little Ossipi Lake turned into a dramatic rescue when the 16-year-old girl was thrown off of a snowball, snowmobile and into the freezing water. Authorities say the driver dove in twice but couldn't reach her. Bill Rogers said he was uh, talking to another fisherman when they saw a man run toward the water and just knew someone had gone in. So I yelled for a rope, and Taylor ran back to his shack. 
and he had a coil of uh, mountain climbing rope. Anyway, he came back. We jumped on a four-wheeler, shot across the lake, and the York County Sheriff's Office said a third man came over on his ATV. And altogether, the three men sprang into action. It was all captured on ATV, uh, a rider that was wearing his a helmet with a camera on it. And uh, they used the rope as a lifeline. They pulled uh, her in back to solid ground. And now the men are um, calling them, or the police department are calling these fine gentlemen heroes. A happy ending for just, you know, someone out on a snowmobile run. Again, heroes, folks. In our eyes, everyone has the chance to be a hero every day. And the reason we do the show is to uh, give you the tools, the insight, the information, sometimes just the motivation to be able to be the best you can be. That's it, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow. Make it another great day. Until then, let's uh, take care of each other. We'll talk tomorrow.